Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. We have news this morning of a startling episode in U.S. history. It's a moment when the United States military experimented on its own troops with mustard gas. It happened during World War II. The U.S. was trying to prepare for any possible gas attacks by the Axis powers. And for many years now, the U.S. has acknowledged those experiments on unknowing Americans. What we have today are even more troubling details from an NPR News investigation. The World War II experiments exposed African-American, Japanese-American, and Puerto Rican troops to chemical weapons. And they sought to find racial differences that could be exploited on the battlefield. NPR's Caitlin Dickerson reports. Rollins Edwards grew up in the segregated South. He says like a lot of black boys his age in Somerville, South Carolina, he was only allowed to go to school through the seventh grade. So when he was drafted into the U.S. Army at 21, it was a big opportunity. The year was 1944. I'm glad I served, and um, I I appreciate, uh, I don't appreciate what they did, hell no, I don't, but everybody don't get a chance to serve their country. After basic training, Edwards was enrolled in a secret program to test the effects of mustard gas on humans. The testing was brutal. Some days, he says he was locked inside of a wooden gas chamber with about a dozen other black soldiers. A mixture of mustard gas and a similar agent called lewisite were piped inside. That's when everybody went crazy. It just felt like you were on fire, sure enough. And um, the guys started screaming and hollering and um, trying to break out. And then some of the guys fainted and finally opened the door and let us out. And the guys were just... (laughs) They were in bad shape because they they just couldn't control themselves. Edward says he didn't have a choice. He had to participate. And if he told anyone about the experiments, his commanding officers said he'd go to prison. They said we were being tested to see what effect these gases would have on black skins. 
Now, that ain't the damnedest thing I ever heard. The U.S. military tested more than 60,000 World War II troops in secret experiments. These tests were formally declassified in 1993. Now, an NPR investigation has found new details about a set of these experiments. Documents show the military scientists thought people with darker skin might be more resistant to chemical weapons, and they tested that theory on black and Puerto Rican soldiers. This was a time when military officials were worried that the German or Japanese armies would use mustard gas on Americans. Experts NPR spoke with say it appears the military hoped troops with darker skin would make ideal chemical soldiers. So if they were more resistant, they could be put on the front lines. According to family members, Japanese-American subjects were told they were being tested as proxies for the Japanese enemy. Now, details of these experiments first surfaced in an academic journal article in 2008, but it received little attention. Until now, the military has never acknowledged these race-based tests. And for the first time, NPR tracked down some of the test subjects and their families. It may have been something I noticed hanging up there for a while, but I remember it was probably in an evening in the TV room. David Besho was a teenager when he decided to ask his dad about a commendation from the U.S. Army that was hanging on the family's living room wall. Because I noticed it was a little bit unusual saying that he volunteered to be exposed to chemical agents. The award was presented with a list of names. Besho's father appears on page 10, followed by a curious similarity. Tanamachi, Kawasaki, Higashi, Sasaki. Forty Japanese-American soldiers are named in all. I just took that occasion to say, hey, what is this about? And he just responded that, yeah, they were looking for Japanese-Americans to make sure the chemical agents had the same effect on Japanese as they did on white people. I guess they were contemplating potentially having to use them against the Japanese. White Americans were used in these experiments. They served as control groups. Their reactions were used to establish what was, quote, normal and compared to the minority soldiers. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. When told about race-based experiments with mustard gas, she pointed to similarities between the Tuskegee subjects and the minority soldiers used in these tests. They were expendable, disposable, allegedly because of their biological difference, but it mirrors, in all of these cases, their social and political status in U.S. society at the time. Black, Puerto Rican, and Japanese-American soldiers were all confined to segregated units during World War II. They cooked, cleared trash, drove dump trucks, and many felt they had to prove themselves. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date, Friday, June 10th, 2016. So I have been told uh, NPR outstanding report they conducted last summer about these medical experiments on World War II veterans and looking for these racial differences. Uh, this was updated. Uh, they were talking about this over the last 10 days uh, because the military has not been providing medical assistance for these victims that they experimented on, the ones that are still alive. And they have elected officials who've been trying to help them out. Uh, the Young Turks, they reported on this uh, within the last week. They made no mention of the racial component of these experiments. And I thought it was outstanding in that clip. You, uh, you got to hear the 
legend, three-time guest of the cows, Dorothy Roberts. She's been mentioned so many times. I thought it was fantastic that they included her uh, just brilliant uh, intellect, insight on all of this. With that, medical apartheid, this is our eighth study session. We're picking up on chapter nine. I believe we are on, if you have the book, page through 230, bottom of 230, chapter nine, radiation experiments on African-Americans. We will get started. Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid, Context of White Supremacy. As Lawrence Altman's fascinating book, Who Goes First? The Story of Self-Experimentation in Medicine, documents, Western physicians have adhered to a long and noble tradition of following animal studies with limited self-experimentation by researchers. This tradition may not always have been prudent, But by testing substances or procedures on themselves before experimenting with appreciable numbers of human subjects, doctors symbolically conveyed their belief that the measures were not inordinately harmful and also signaled a researcher's willingness to share the risks as well as the glory of discovery. But in the 1940s, radiation researchers declined to experiment on themselves. Wright Langham observed, We considered doing such experiments at one time, but plutonium is considered to be sufficiently potentially dangerous to discourage our doing absorption experiments upon ourselves. These doctors needed human subjects, and they turned to the clinic out of habit. But by what ethical rules were the government scientists bound when exposing unwitting patients to dangerous radiation? Robert Stone the same doctor who crowed about injecting the nigger truck driver, was a passionate advocate of human experiments, and he offered an elegantly written set of ethical guidelines. He suggested that using only the moribund, prisoners serving life sentences, military personnel, and terminally ill cancer patients was morally acceptable. So, in hospitals, schools, and other institutions across the nation, Doctors administered exposures to plutonium, X-rays, gamma rays, and radium that far exceeded established tolerance limits. Each time, they claimed to be using subjects in Stone's categories. But as we have seen, Stone and others stretched his morally acceptable categories, casting Cade, Allen, and other hardy but uninformed subjects as frail or terminally ill, for the sake of convenience. In June 1947, the Medical Board of Review, a blue-ribbon panel of Manhattan Project scientists and university faculty, convened to examine AEC research. It emerged three days later with an official AEC policy that offered extraordinary protections and was given the blessing of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Biology and Medicine. No substance known to be or suspected of being poisonous or harmful could be utilized in research on human subjects unless each one of the following conditions were met. A. That a reasonable hope exists that the administration of such a substance will improve the condition of the patient. B. That the patient gives his complete and informed consent in writing. And C that the responsible next of kin, given writing a similarly complete and informed consent, 
revocable at any time during the course of treatment. This document represented a quiet revolution in standards. It is the first occurrence of the term informed consent in ethical policy, which meant it was now not enough to gain the assent of radiation subjects. They also had to understand clearly what they were being exposed to and whether this application constituted treatment, research, or both. However, there is even more in the AEC policy. The requirement that the next of kin also give consent was truly progressive. It was important because many of the subjects were too desperate, too poorly educated, or too poorly informed to appreciate what their doctors proposed to do to them. Abusive experiments of the post-war era are often excused on the grounds that critics are wielding present-day standards to judge decades-old research. But this 1947 policy demonstrates that such abusive experiments were as morally unacceptable in their time as they are in ours. Unfortunately, the sweeping protections of the AEC policy were not widely distributed, and scientists routinely flouted their own policy. Stone and his colleagues cited military expediency as the justification for involuntary medical experimentation. But with the exception of AEC physician Shields Warren, they did not seem to realize that they were invoking the same justification that Nazi doctors used in conscripting prisoners and concentration camp victims for horrific experimental exposures. Shields Warren, however, observed in 1950, It's not long since we got through trying Germans for doing exactly the same thing. In October 1952, the United States Air Force Military Personnel Center, AFMPC, decided to adopt the Ten Rules of the Nuremberg Code on the advice of Pentagon personnel lawyer Stephen S. Jackson. In 1953, Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson issued a memo that established the Nuremberg Code as Defense Department DOD policy. Wilson now required experimental subjects to sign an informed consent statement setting out the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, and effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. But despite the adoption of the Nuremberg Code, scientists persisted in approximately 50 experimental radiation abuses within hospital corridors from Los Angeles to Rochester, New York. The Manhattan Project and the Atomic Energy Commission spearheaded research, some of which persisted through the 1970s. Between 1963 and 1971, a Dr. Heller irradiated the gonads of 131 prisoners in Oregon, including at least 66 Negro volunteers, with radioactive thymidine. Vanderbilt University physicians administered radioactive cocktails to pregnant women in Nashville. The University of Chicago fed the radioactive elements strontium and cesium to 102 unwitting patients at state schools. One Dickensian institution, the Fernald School in Waltham, Massachusetts, 
added radioactive oatmeal to the menus of 30 orphans in a program sponsored by the AEC with the support of the Quaker Oats Company. Old videotapes reveal that some of these fernald boys were African-American, but no records with racial identifiers were ever released. When victims died, government scientists obtained their bodies and autopsied them carefully, measuring the levels of radioactivity and biological damage. To enable large numbers of these grim assessments, at least 15,000 bodies were exposed and collected for one project alone, Operation Sunshine. Until the mid-1980s, and without the knowledge of patients or their next of kin, this program shipped the bodies and body parts of radiation experiment victims to be dissected at headquarters in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Between 1960 and 1972, University of Cincinnati radiologist Eugene L. Sanger, M.D., directed experimental high-dose TBI on a total of 200 cancer patients, of whom 150 were black. The TBI method was dangerous, utilizing magnavolt X-rays, cobalt-60 or cesium-137, to administer the equivalent of 15,000 chest X-rays to the entire body. Patients typically received from 100 to 400 rads. A rad is a unit of absorbed radiation with a complex definition. 150 rads, a common TBI dosage, is equivalent to 400 mammograms. 42% of the subjects given higher doses died within weeks, and some within days. However, a minority of the subjects received partial body radiation, PBI, which spared some portions of the body. When he proposed the experiments in hopes of funding and support from the Army Director of Nuclear Medicine in 1958, Sanger gave an experimental rationale, explaining, These studies are designed to obtain new information about the metabolic effects of total body and partial body irradiation, so as to have a better understanding of the acute and subacute effects of irradiation in the human. He deemed such information necessary to allow scientists to protect military personnel who might be irradiated during a war. The Army agreed to fund his experiments, but it expressed doubts, because doctors already knew there were radiosensitive cancers, which responded to radiation treatment, and radioresistant cancers, which typically did not. By the 1940s, TBI was found effective against some radiosensitive cancers, which were disseminated widely throughout the body, such as leukemia and lymphoma, but not against the localized radioresistant cancers that Sanger studied. However, the subjects in Sanger's experiments, such as the 82 patients in Cincinnati General Hospital, 51 of whom were black, were told only that the TBI was a treatment for their cancers. Among their catastrophic effects, these high doses destroyed the subject's bone marrow, and because bone marrow produces red blood cells, the TBI proved quickly fatal to one out of every four subjects who died within about a month after suffering anemia, vomiting, and falling white blood cell counts, which left them open to a variety of infections. If one also counts patients who received PBI, 85 of the 111 people Sanger irradiated at Cincinnati General were black. In 
TBI experiments were also conducted by doctors at other Cincinnati hospitals, at Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Center in New York, at Texas's Baylor University College of Medicine, at the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, and at the AEC Hospital in Oak Ridge. Only one of the administering physicians was an African-American, Howard Perry, M.D., who vigorously denied that the experiments had any racial component. He died before this book was conceived, so I had no opportunity to interview him. However, his lawyer, Brian Hurley, wrote to Martha Stevens, author of The Treatment, that Perry was a compassionate man who had been falsely accused of targeting other blacks for radiation experiments. Other radiation scientists assailed the description given by Sanger and his deputy Dr. Clarence Lushbaugh of TBI for radioresistant cancers as therapy, and insisted that his experiments were too dangerous. Carl Morgan, who had considered Sanger a friend and had worked with Lushbaugh at Oak Ridge, said in 1994, I think the case of Clarence Lushbaugh's treatment of humans as guinea pigs and Eugene Sanger's at the hospital in Cincinnati are some of the most terrible human studies I ever heard of, other than those that took place in Germany and a few in Japan during the war. Sanger at first insisted to AEC interviewers in 1994 that written informed consent had been unnecessary for his experiments. Later, Cincinnati General produced consent signatures for TBI subjects, but the subjects' survivors questioned them. For example, Gloria Nelson, the granddaughter of subject Amelia Jackson, pointed out that a signed consent form was produced from her grandmother's file, but that Jackson had never learned to read or write. Dr. Eugene Sanger stated in congressional hearings that race, IQ, or socioeconomic standing were not selection factors. Officially, he explained the racial disparity by saying that the experimental population merely reflected the racial component of the hospital populations where they worked. His testimony, however, is contradicted by his research partner, Clarence Lushbaugh, who explained in 1995 that they chose slum patients because these persons don't have any money and they're black and they're poorly washed. These persons were available in the University of Cincinnati to Dr. Sanger. I did review what he was doing, and I thought it was actually well done. In 1972, Sanger's TBI projects ended when the DOD cut funding for them, after the university had accrued more than $850,000. Sanger no longer referred to his work as investigative. He defended his experiments as cancer treatments and pointed out that such radiation treatments are used today for cancer treatment. They are used in extreme cases, but today's irradiations, including bone marrow transplants, bear little resemblance to the experiments carried out by Sanger. Today's procedures are therapeutic and reserved for those whose cancer is widely spread and non-responsive to other methods. Because the irradiation destroys the bone marrow, marrow for transplant is acquired for reinfusion after the procedure. Unfortunately, it is more difficult to match the bone marrow of African Americans, who tend to have a richer complement of antibodies than do most whites. 
This means that, like Marion Sims's enslaved vesicovaginal fistula patients, the black TBI subjects' experiences eventually enabled cancer treatments from which blacks are less likely to profit than are whites. Moreover, Sanger's patients did not have to die to provide such information. Researchers had known at least since 1956 that TBI destroys the bone marrow, but now they could calibrate the lethal doses more precisely. Sanger, who was still a professor emeritus at the University of Cincinnati Medical School as this book went to press, did not reply to my telephoned interview requests through the UC Press Relations Office or to emails in which I asked him to discuss his work. But in his public statements, he defends his research as therapeutic and consensual. The venerable American College of Radiology agreed, exonerating Sanger of wrongdoing on the basis of his denials and by ignoring the rules that governed experimentation during his tenure as a DOD researcher. The trajectory of Sanger's medical career did not falter, and he never faced criminal charges. Martha Stevens, a University of Cincinnati English professor, has written The Treatment, a comprehensive and unflinching history of the TBI tests. Its chapters describe the long, bitter fight for justice that finally culminated in a $5 million 1999 settlement between 13 researchers and the subject's survivors. The agreement also stipulated that the university would erect a permanent memorial naming the victims, and in June 2000, it complied by installing a small, curiously dated plaque labeled Dedicated to the Patients of the Radiation Experimentation, 1973-1974, and listing the names of over 170 patients. The plaque was placed on the medical school grounds behind a dumpster and nestled between the kitchen and the parking garage. Sanger's use of mostly black subjects was a matter of convenience and culture, but other radiation experiments offered scientific rationales for deliberately targeting black subjects. Like the scientific racists of a century earlier, Investigators wished to demonstrate that blacks would respond differently to radiation's medical dangers. The design of such experiments required African-American subjects. Many such experiments were conducted at the Medical College of Virginia, MCV, part of Virginia Commonwealth University. Between 1949 and 1960, the MCV was home to a secret metabolic laboratory, whose principal focus was the Army's preparation for massive nuclear casualties. MCV was chosen in part because it was a heavily research-oriented school in the South, and the government had a particular interest in black subjects. For example, one MCV experiment sought to determine whether radiation inflicted different degrees of damage on the skins of black people than on that of whites. In 1947, Everett Idris Evans, at the behest of the Surgeon General of the Army, set up the nation's first civilian burn unit at MCV, funded by the Army. Evans planned to compare the burn injuries radiation caused in whites to those it caused in blacks. Some were charity patients 
who had been severely burned in accidents and whose use as experimental material constituted payment for their care by MCV staff. But MCV researchers deliberately caused third-degree burns to the skins of other patients at Dooley, a charity hospital for black children, and at St. Philip, its sister hospital for black adults. These hospitals eventually yielded 100 black subjects a year between the ages of 6 months and 90 years for similar MCV burn experiments. Doctors used radiation emitted at graduated levels to measure the precise amount of energy necessary to induce specific levels of first- to third-degree burns. Investigators also produced the radiation burns on the arms of 44 whites at different area hospitals, and, at least in some cases, scientists acknowledged that these were produced for investigational purposes. The doctors and radiation physicians used their data to calculate the numbers of people who would die at specific distances from a nuclear bomb, like that detonated over Hiroshima, approximately 20 kilotons. Evans's team deduced that blacks suffered more intense burns than whites after the same exposure, and from this, researchers concluded that radiation burns from a nuclear event would injure blacks much more severely than whites. Another experimental group of 460 black and 770 white patients in the Medical College of Virginia was injected with a variety of radioactive substances, including phosphorus-32, without their consent. Blacks made up 37% of these experimental subjects, nearly four times their representation in the population. The AEC also sponsored 15 other radiation studies on 300 black patients at New Orleans Charity Hospital. The studies were conducted by Tulane University physicians. The most toxic of these experiments involved dispensing mercury in yet another study of disparate racial reactions to radiation. Twenty-two black patients were made to swallow radioactive mercury in order to calibrate its symptoms and the length of time the body took to excrete the toxic metal. In another Tulane experiment, doctors surreptitiously placed radioactive mercury into the open sores that remained just after they had removed blisters from a dozen colored and three white patients in order to judge the metal's effects on healing times. They amassed no clinically meaningful data. Despite the MCV findings that blacks were more vulnerable to radiation burn damage, an illogical belief persisted among doctors and radiologic technicians that African Americans could tolerate increased amounts of radiation than could whites without ill effect. Like the belief that blacks better tolerate pain than do whites, this stubborn myth gave license to conduct painful and dangerous experimental radiation practices. In 1968, consumer activist Ralph Nader complained to the Washington Post about the nationwide practice of giving Negroes 25 to 50 percent stronger X-ray doses than white patients. G.J. Tarleton, a professor of radiology at the predominantly black Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, swiftly dismissed the claim as a fantastic charge. But California radiologic technicians 
conducting a 1966 survey, revealed that 72% of the state's X-ray technicians had opted on their own initiative to administer these higher X-ray exposures to blacks because of their vague beliefs that African Americans were physiologically different. Their bones are harder and denser. Their skin is darker. Their flesh is tougher. Physicians from the Public Health Service and the American College of Radiology denied ever issuing such advisories to doctors. But it was technicians, not doctors, who were making the experimental adjustments without citing their actions in the official medical records. Also, despite the denials, physicians were being taught to administer higher-than-indicated radiation doses to blacks. For example, the 1963 edition of X-Ray Technology by Charles A. Jacoby and Don Q. Paris, a standard textbook, contained a charted recommendation that the standard radiation doses should be increased for Negro X-ray patients. In 1968, a study commissioned by Bernard Goldman, director of the New York State Bureau of X-ray, also found that a significant portion of technicians had exposed blacks to higher radiation doses than whites, leading the New York State Health Department to specifically prohibit the practice. There were many other racially mediated radiation experiments. For example, the AEC irradiated 235 African-American newborns in 1953 to 1954 in various hospitals across the nation. But the released radiation records give very sparse details. However, we know that biophysics professor Dr. Lester Van Middlesworth injected each of six black newborns with 1.5 microcuries of radioactive iodine-131 in a 1940 program at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Records also reveal that six of the seven infants injected at John Gaston Hospital, a now-defunct public hospital in Memphis, were also black, and their doctors measured their uptake of iodine, which targets the thyroid gland, 24 hours later so they could learn more about how the gland functions in infants. Today, Radioactive tracers are used for therapeutic or screening purposes in smaller, safer amounts. No one should avoid such tests, which trade a low radiation risk for significant health benefits. But these were not therapeutic injections, and their risks were unjustifiable. The experimental use of radiation to harm and to stigmatize African Americans is not entirely relegated to the distant past. In 1978, scientists revisited an experiment that had been conducted between 1940 and 1959 at several sites, including New York University Hospital. There, scientists irradiated the scalps of 2,500 children, 625 of them black, to treat their tinea capitis, or ringworm. Without notification to their parents, children were taken from classrooms for the X-ray treatments, and their burns and side effects were carefully assessed, raising the question whether the X-ray treatments were chiefly experimental rather than therapeutic in nature. Blacks made up 9.8% of the U.S. population in 1940, so these children were represented at two and a half times their rate in the population. 
Between 1910 and 1959, before effective topical medications were developed, 200,000 children around the world received about 175 rads each for treatment of ringworm. But by 1940, when NYU irradiated children, researchers had known for over 25 years that this level of radiation was extremely dangerous, and the standard treatment for ringworm was not irradiation, but ultraviolet light or topical chemotherapy. In 1978, the American Journal of Public Health published an article in which NYU researchers assessed the psychiatric results this irradiation had had on the developing brains of 177 of the subjects. They administered the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory (MMPI) to 118 whites and 59 blacks. NYU had included in the experiment a control group of 1,800 children who had been treated with chemotherapy, 450 of whom, or 25%, were black. Researchers found more psychological symptoms and deviant personality scores among the adult whites who had been treated by irradiation than among those who had been treated with topical medication. But they found that the radiation-treated black subjects. Had no more psychiatric symptoms than medically treated blacks, and this suggested to them that radiation levels that could cause brain damage in whites did not affect blacks. Some researchers have suggested brain insults at birth have relatively less impact among blacks, on the risk of subsequent neuropsychiatric disorders, than among whites. The article stated. This conclusion recalls both the baseless belief that higher doses of radiation were needed in blacks to produce the same effects as in whites, and the previously discussed belief that some disorders, such as syphilis and tuberculosis, affect blacks in a manner that spares their nervous systems and brains. However, investigators admitted to serious flaws in their experimental design. The MMPI. Is ethnically biased and less sensitive in discerning pathology among African Americans. Also, researchers tested fewer than 10% of the original subjects, and this small sample size may also have distorted the results. Black body radiation. In more cases than not, the victims are African Americans. You're dealing with the majority of people of African American descent. My mother thinks it's a grand-scale plan," insists Elmerine Whitfield Bell. Is she right? For some radiation research programs, the racial breakdown has been obscured by the engineered atmosphere of deceit and secrecy. Even patient names are missing, lost forever with case records. But all extant data indicate that a higher number of African Americans than whites. Were used in many clandestine radiation experiments. As mentioned earlier, subject advocate E. Cooper Brown of the National Committee for Radiation Victims estimated that three of every five radiation victims were people of color. Seventy-five percent of the subjects in the University of Cincinnati irradiation experiments were African American. But the real significance is the fact. That African Americans were typically used in significantly greater proportions than the 10 to 12 percent of the population they have constituted. In 
DOE Secretary Hazel O'Leary, the first African-American to hold that position, displayed refreshing candor as she reacted to graphic press allegations of the government's experimentation on its own citizens. She admitted the agency's guilt and ordered the selective declassification of vital nuclear information. In December 1993, she ordered the opening of all DOE records of the 435 human radiation experiments conducted between 1944 and the 1990s. O'Leary's investigation ushered in a new atmosphere of openness to replace decades of Machiavellian Cold War secretiveness. As she explained, we've learned that openness helps to bring a corrective to government, and quickly. She ordered 665 cubic feet of original declassified documents and investigation results stored in the National Archives and mounted on DOE websites. This is the sort of forthrightness that would have prevented the investigative failures of the Tuskegee Ad Hoc Committee. On January 15, 1994, President Clinton created the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, ACHRE, to investigate fully the genesis of these experiments and to judge them. The committee was also charged with making sure that these abuses could never be repeated. Clinton also issued an apology on October 3, 1995, but few seem to know this. It was drowned out by the din that accompanied the O.J. Simpson verdict, which was announced a few hours later. Clinton's brief remarks did not mention any racial component of the studies. The revelations of the committee facilitated civil lawsuits brought against the government and universities by hundreds of victims and survivors. Some cases have been successful, such as those mounted by the chiefly black victims of the Cincinnati TBI experiments. Others are still being contested. However, the ACHRE chose to interview the researchers and publish the resultant oral histories instead of charging them with crimes. None of the physicians conducting the radiation experiments were ever placed on trial. The radiation experiments capture the moment when an important group of physician scientists ceased to view themselves as healers and benefactors first, with disastrous results for their victims and for American medicine. For African Americans, the full costs in lost health and lost trust are still being reckoned. Even today, events occasionally remind us that racism and radiation experimentation remain linked at locations such as the Savannah River site. Locals call it simply the SRS. Located just outside Aiken, South Carolina, owned by the DOE, and managed by South Carolina's Westinghouse Savannah River Company, WSRC, this high-tech manufacturing facility once produced tritium and plutonium-239 for nuclear weapons. Now that the Cold War has abated, it processes nuclear waste. Approximately 2,800 of SRS's 14,000 employees are black, and by 2002, they had filed at least 22 lawsuits. These complain that black employees were denied promotions, were subjected to racist graffiti, found nooses hanging in their lockers, and were subjected to higher radiation levels than were whites. 
We have disciplined employees, including terminating an employee for incidents involving nooses, WSRC President Robert Peaty confirmed for the Augusta Chronicle in 2002. In 1997, the Department of Labor ordered Westinghouse to compensate seven black SRS workers. But even worse, blacks complain that they are relegated to the high radiation areas of the plant, dubbed the Coon Areas by whites. James Ruttenberg of the University of Colorado School of Medicine assessed employee radiation readings between 1991 and 1998 using their dosimeters, individual radiation counters. His findings corroborate these workers' claims. When all annual dose measurements are grouped by race, the doses for blacks are higher than for whites in all dose categories. The annual penetrating doses for blacks are about 1.8 times as high as the doses for whites. The analyses support the hypothesis that these differences are due to job placement practices that put blacks in jobs that have higher radiation exposures than whites. Yet their requests for transfer to safer areas have been denied. Jimmy Walker, for example, inhaled plutonium at the plant in 1977. This drove his exposure beyond the permitted lifetime dose of 50 rems. A rem is a measure of radiation dose, essentially a rad that is adjusted for its biological effect. In 2002, after multiple permanent transfer requests were ignored, his radiation level soared to more than 80 rems, nearly twice the permitted lifetime exposure, and he retired at age 48 in poor health. The exposures also placed Walker at risk of becoming an experimental subject. At a 2002 checkup, a company doctor pressed into Walker's hands a leaflet suggesting he donate his body to a radiation research project at Washington State University. In return, his family would receive $500. I feel betrayed by the company, by the government, Walker told London's independent newspaper in 2002. Now they have admitted the radiation causes cancer. All the time they were telling me there was nothing to worry about. By 2002, the DOE had paid out $25 million to black workers in 62 settlements. But the company admits no wrongdoing. African-American radiation victims are neither silent nor passive. Elmer Allen's daughter, Elmerine Whitfield-Bell, is an activist who challenges abusive experimentation and refuses to let the memory of her father and the other radiation victims fade from memory with the headlines. What I really want to come from this, Bell says, is some type of coalition of victims and survivors of radiation treatments and experiments, so that we can get together and really speak to the issue on a national and on an international basis. I'm determined that as long as I breathe, I will address the issue of radiation and how to eradicate this sort of experimentation from the earth. It will always be used against poor folk. We have to do something. Chapter 10. Caged Subjects Research on Black Prisoners I am disturbed that the World Medical Association is now hedging on its claws about not using criminals as experimental material. 
the American influence has been at work on its suspension. One of the nicest American scientists I know was heard to say, Criminals in our penitentiaries are fine experimental material, and much cheaper than chimpanzees. Pertinax, British Medical Journal, January 1963 On a brightly promising early spring day in 2004, Jesse Williams and I shared brunch in a Philadelphia seafood house splashed with bright jewel-like colors. Against a backdrop of sunny seascapes and murmuring besuited executives, Williams affably recited his resume, detailing the grim expertise in pain and survival he had accrued during his four decades imprisoned in the Holmesburg prison system, the Stygian scientific kingdom of University of Pennsylvania dermatologist Dr. Albert M. Kligman. The evening before, Williams, a massive, imposing man with a boxer's build, a bald head, a piercing gaze, and stentorian delivery, had spoken eloquently at a showing of Acres of Skin, the documentary based upon Alan Hornblum's incisive book of the same title, an expose of the decades of Kligman's medical experimentation at Holmesburg. Williams told the audience of being burned by radiation and sulfuric acid, of immersing his arms in chemicals that had tanned his skin like leather, and of how physicians and technicians had rubbed acid into his scrotum until the skin fell away, all for three dollars a session. Researchers had cut his armpits to study the glands, and laced his back with scars in an attempt to induce the disfiguring ropey overgrowths called keloids. Not only patches of poison oak and ivy, but also cadaveric tissue had been implanted in his back and he had inhaled vapors infused with influenza and other viruses. Patch tests of various harsh chemicals and ointments had left a checkerboard of rectangular scars on his back. Detergents, whose names he did not know, had removed his hair and abraded his scalp. Williams had offered himself up for as many as twelve experiments at once, bringing in from thirty to fifty dollars for each multi-session research study. Yet, he said, we were never told what was going on. We never had witnesses or a receipt for, copy of, anything we signed. Before the audience, Williams had been practiced and powerful. But I shared a tete-a-tete with a more subdued man, one invested with a gentle but direct manner, and who spoke with complete candor about a violent past that included jail stints for robbery and assault. I've done it all, he admitted quietly. He is now a Christian, and he spoke sadly of the many former inmates who died in broken health, and of his concern for another seriously ill subject. Only after being prodded to speak of his own plight did he lament his myriad physical problems, from leg ulcers to mental changes to chronic skin problems, which he ascribed to the testing. The doctors can't tell me what it is, they don't know what I was tested with. Williams confided his regret of never having achieved the education he desperately wanted, and he voiced ambivalence about displaying his scars, physical and mental, for strangers in order to gain support for an inmate's lawsuit. I feel I'm on display in the zoo sometimes. He sat back and sighed softly. No one should ever have to go through what we went through, 
Not again. Not in a civilized country. When Robert Boyle, the 17th century father of chemistry, mused upon the feasibility of scientific research with humans, he proposed, Trial might be made on some genuine human bodies, especially those of malefactors. From the testing of inoculation practices to the use of cadavers for dissection and display, the medical community has turned to jail inmates first when it sought experimental subjects. Even a 1910 editorial in the Black Physician's chief publication, the fledgling Journal of the National Medical Association, proposed that prisoners were the most appropriate medical research subjects. JNMA suggested that prisoners might simultaneously expiate their debt to society and protect others, especially African Americans, by substituting for them as unwilling research subjects. Black physicians wished to pursue research while protecting their African American patients, and the use of prisoners was an alternative with which everyone, black and white, could be comfortable. But why are prisoners such universally desirable subjects for medical research? Boyle was only adhering to the inexorable logic of his profession when he suggested that medical experimentation was most acceptable when practiced upon prisoners. In his time, prisoners were vulnerable, stigmatized, and expendable. They tended to be poor and uneducated. They were likely to belong to despised and powerless minority groups. They had already lost most important civil rights. And their crimes, or alleged crimes, made them feared and hated. They were barred from assuming any useful role in society, which, in turn, begrudged them even the sparsest expenditures for their room and board, for which some 18th-century prisoners were billed. Few had families or much support from the family they had. In Boyle's time, as in our own, prisoners were viewed as dangerous parasites who would not be missed should something happen to them. Boyle's shrewd suggestion has even been shared by prisoners as some clamor for inclusion in medical investigations for reasons that are examined hereafter. But in our time, there has been another motivation. Prisoners are ideal subjects for Phase I trials. Federal regulations dictate that modern human medical experiments consist of at least three formal phases. Highly simplified, these are Phase I, which asks, how safe is this drug? Phase II, which continues evaluating safety while also seeking to determine how effective is this drug? And if the treatment seems safe and effective, the trial proceeds to phase three, which compares the treatment to the standard treatment, using subjects treated with the investigative therapy and the control group treated with the current standard of care, if one exists. If not, the control group may be given a placebo, an inert sham treatment to enable a comparison with the new therapy. Phase one trials use healthy volunteers to test the safety of the treatment, looking for side effects and the best mode of administration. Because they are the first human tests, Phase I trials carry a higher risk of problems, such as side effects, than do other trials. For this reason, companies prefer Phase I trials to take place in institutions where subjects can be carefully monitored 
and are unlikely to be lost to follow-up. If serious problems develop, the researchers want to know. Prisoners fit the bill nicely. Around 1963, Robert Batterman, M.D., an expert in pharmaceutical experimentation, said, Phase 1 is very big in prisons. The FDA prefers Phase 1 to be on an inpatient basis. The only place available for large-scale toxicity studies is prison. He also added, The vast majority of new drugs, more than 90%, never get into medical practice. They prove too toxic and fall by the wayside in Phase 2. That Jesse Williams and thousands of his fellow incarcerated research subjects were African-American is no accident. African-Americans have always been dramatically overrepresented in jails and prisons, at national rates of 40 to 61 percent of all the incarcerated. So any discussion of U.S. inmates is closely bound up with race, and medical experimentation behind bars is no exception. Some influential white scientists, such as Italian physician Cesar Lombroso, whose theories were discussed in Chapter 3, did not distinguish between blacks and criminals. In 1911, Lombroso observed, There exists a group of criminals, born for evil, against whom all social cures break as though against a rock, emphasis added, a fact which compels us to eliminate them completely, even if by death. This group consisted of men who were inherently, immutably evil because of their deranged physiology. They were also, in his view, more likely to be black than white. When Lombroso sought to illustrate his theories of criminal man, he unhesitatingly chose an African society, the Dinka of the Upper Nile, as the perfect example of born savage criminals. The Dinka were no more bellicose than many other societies on other continents, but their dark skin was enough to qualify them for this distinction. Among the physical stigmata that conclusively signaled their criminal nature were dark skin and the concomitant inability to blush. Inability to blush has always been considered the accompaniment of crime and shamelessness, warned Lombroso. Blushing is very rare among idiots and savages. Medical theories of criminality are important because medicine has long claimed a special provenance over criminality. The very frequent reference to a prison as a site of rehabilitation and treatment is the sine qua non of modern penology. Illegal behavior was medicalized in an 1870 statement of the Congress of the American Prison Association. A criminal is a man who has suffered under a disease evinced by the perpetration of a crime, and who may reasonably be held to be under the dominion of such disease, until his conduct has afforded very strong presumption, not only that he is free from its immediate influence, but that the chances of its recurrence have become exceedingly remote. Dr. Carl Menninger, often called the Dean of American Psychiatry, was a psychoanalyst, Harvard professor, and scion of the dynasty of psychiatrists who founded the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. His lectures and readable books helped bring mental disorders out of the dark closet of shame and secrecy in which they had languished until the mid-20th century. He also had a special sympathy for prisoners, 
but he attributed criminal behavior not to the constitutional evil of Lombroso's conscious-deprived criminal man, but to a limited psyche. The spasms and struggles of a sub-marginal human being trying to make it in our complex society with inadequate equipment. African-American behavior has long been pathologized in a similar manner. In fact, the imaginary black diseases dreamed up by the American School of Pathology are psychiatric disorders with a strong forensic bias. As described in Chapter 1, they ascribed illegal behavior as well as pathological behavior to blacks, and the medicine Dr. Samuel A. Cartwright prescribed was punishment by whips or hard labor. 20th century corrections personnel perpetuated this medical pathologizing of behavior by making references to borderline personality disorders, antisocial personalities, and sociopaths within their walls who had never been so diagnosed by a medical professional. San Quentin prison psychiatrist Dr. Harvey Powelson, for example, discussed how in the 1950s, staff recklessly made diagnoses of inmates from Rorschach tests, a then-popular diagnostic tool that involved interpreting responses to inkblot patterns. My sense of the situation is that adult authority used the tests for rationalizations for what they'd already decided based upon their own intuition. Context of white supremacy... Uh, we will pick up there. We're in Chapter 10, uh, the subheading where we will pick up Dark Days at Holmesburg Prison. Medical Apartheid, Harriet A. Washington. Uh, folks that would like to participate, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. The number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. If you want to join in, but you don't want to use your phone, uh, you can use the free VOPE line. It is linked uh, at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C, forward slash, one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C, forward slash, one, race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put in that address, look on the left of the page. You will see the link. It says free vote line. Click that link. It will open a small window on your screen. Uh, the top line, it is a drop-down menu. Uh, select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 
final line, it will ask for the code, or excuse me, it will ask for a name. Uh, you can use your real name if you're comfortable with that. You can press random keys. You can use a nickname, whatever. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. Uh, it should connect you to the live program. You should be able to hear us. And then it is the same procedure once you get connected live. Uh, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. And then uh, you will hear an audio prompt to press the number one. Press one. We will get you on the live line. You can share your thoughts. Uh, with that, uh, I will again request people not lollygag. Please do not wait until we get to the bottom of the hour and decide that you would like to participate. If you have commentary you would like to share, go ahead and get your hand up. Let's see. Uh, we will. We will go ahead and get folks who dialed in. Uh, if you're on the line with a hand up, you should be with us. Let's see. Folks who have a hand up, uh, you should be with us. I'll grab hands as I see them. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to all the callers and the listeners. Um, this section was really powerful. There were so many notes that I made. It was just insane. Um, but I just wanted to get a few points out, and I might, if I get an opportunity, if I, I'll say some more later on. But um, in the news clip that you played as the introduction, I didn't catch the beginning, but I caught a portion of it um, where they discussed the, uh, I believe it was the testing of mustard gas on blacks and Puerto Ricans. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Okay. I believe that, um, again, they were trying to facilitate creating weapons of mass destruction to try and kill non-white people. And I remember in the clip, they said that the white people were considered the test standard um, as far as what they were looking at as normal, because they were the, um, the, the, uh, the control subjects. Am I correct? Yes, sir. So that means, again, their entire system is based on trying to make their melanin-deficient mutant status the standard, the human standard, and the natural melanated stance, uh, status and standard of nature, um, the anomaly. Um, they're just really psychopathic and functionally uh, insane creatures. Um, this kind of brings me to something that I uh, came across on the job today. And I remember reading uh, a number of years ago about white people uh, killing black people and uh, giving themselves blood transfusions. And I didn't really think about it until today. I got a call at work. I work in the healthcare industry from a white female and the white female was pregnant and she was not able to get a specific medication. It's called Rogan. And um, I didn't know what it was, but I have a pregnant uh, coworker, white coworker, who understood what it was. And when she explained it to me, it made me think. Rogam is essentially um, given to uh, pregnant mothers because they have what's called an RH negative status and their blood is a, uh, a protein and their fetus has an RH positive status. And essentially the mother's uh, white blood cells attack the blood of the fetus and attempt to destroy and end up killing the fetus basically due to the fact that they're not compatible. Now, um, 
this is something that is essentially a white disease. From what I read, 15% of white people uh, have that, that disease. They said uh, 7 to 8% of African Americans have it, and almost very little, um, almost like 1 or 2% of Native Americans and Asians have it. But the black people actually got it from race mixing. So this came from the rape of black women during the, the slave, slave period of uh, white supremacy. So um, this, again, just goes to show that they're mutants. I mean, if you can have a child, a fetus in your womb, and your blood is not compatible with what's in your womb, then that really speaks to even what Dr. Welsing is to say about them being an inbred race. And they've inbred to the point where the, the mother is not even a viable, uh, has, doesn't even have a viable reproductive system to produce life. I just wanted to say that. So to get to the book, um, I'll try and make it as brief as I can. Uh, the first thing I wanted to discuss, it was on page 232. There's a paragraph that says, uh, this document represented a quiet revolution in standards. It is the first occurrence of the term informed consent and ethical policy, which meant it was now not enough to to gain the assent of radiation subjects. They also had to understand clearly what they were being exposed to and whether this application constituted treatment, research, or both. However, there is even more that the AEC policy in the AEC, in the AEC policy, the requirement that the next of kin also give consent was truly progressive. It was important because many of the subjects were too desperate, poorly educated, or too poorly informed to appreciate what their doctors proposed to do to them. Abusive experiments of the post-war era are often excused on the grounds that critics are wielding present-day standards to judge decades-old research. But this 1947 policy demonstrates that such abuse, abusive experiments were as morally unacceptable in their time as they are in ours. And this just reminds me of the rhetorical ethic of white people. Um, when I was watching uh, Roots the other day, they kept giving like this um, introduction saying that the language used was the standard of the time. And it's the same thing they do. They try to make it seem like today is different from 500 years ago. And it's the same thing. And the idea is that so many of us um, just believe whatever they say wholesale simply because they're white. And we get caught up in the semantics of verbiage and rhetorical ethic and white, white validation to the point that they fool us into accepting their treachery. And then they blame the victim once the victim is, is victimized. Um, there's uh, a section. Oh, there's a section on page. Oh, on page uh, 235. It says, uh, Gloria Nelson, the granddaughter of subject, Amelia Jackson pointed out that a signed consent form was produced from her grandmother's file, but that Jackson had never learned to read or write. And this just, just shows that white, white people even violate their own law in order to practice racism. They'll forge your name on a document. Um, they'll do anything possible to mistreat you, even if in a situation like that where the person couldn't read or write, magically she has a signature that's there. It makes no sense to me. Um, so, again, is just being careful because white people will actually, you know, lie in order to facilitate mistreating or even killing non-white people. And that's something to, to really look out for. Um, also, there is, oh, yeah, the, the, I'll say some of the other stuff for later, but the most important thing is in the new, okay, it's, uh, oh, yes, here, it says, um, but why are prisoners such universal? This is on page uh, 340, 246, excuse me. It says, but why are prisoners such universally desirable subjects for medical research? 
Boyle was only adhering to the inexorable logic of his profession when he suggested that medical experimentation was most acceptable when practiced upon prisoners. In his time, prisoners were vulnerable, stigmatized, expendable. They tended to be poor and uneducated and were likely to belong to despised and powerless minority groups. They had already lost most important civil rights and their crimes or alleged crimes made them feared and hated. They were barred from assuming any useful role in society, which in turn begrudged them even the sparest, sparsest excuse me, expenditures for their room and board, for which some 18th century prisoners were billed. Few had families or, or much support from, their fam, from the family they had. In Boyle's time, as in our own, prisoners were viewed as dangerous parasites who would not be missed some, should something happen to them. Boyle's true suggestion was even shared by prisoners. Some, as some clamor for inclusion in medical investigations for reasons that are examined hereafter. Now, when, they, when she asked the question of uh, why prisoners were universally desirable uh, subjects for medical research, and it just took me to the 13th Amendment, it's because prisoners are slaves. That entire paragraph that I read basically describes what, what black people are and what slaves are. Essentially, we, we are stigmatized, we're expendable, we uh, tend to be poor and uneducated, likely to belong to despised and powerless minority groups. Everything that I said is exactly what black people are today. And when they talk about using these prisoners, it's because prisoners are slaves. And slaves can, you can do anything to slaves, just like when she discussed the, um, the so-called father of modern gynecology using slave women um, to chop their bodies up and remove their, their uh, reproductive organs without anesthesia while having doctors and in, in the later years, uh, slave, female slaves holding other slaves down for him to butcher them. So I just wanted to uh, just speak on that for now, and hopefully I'll get an opportunity to touch on the other things. But thank you so much for taking my call, Gus. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks have comments they wanted to share. Feel free. Yes, ma'am. I'll be heard. Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there was quite a bit in this particular reading, but what stood out first is that the researchers themselves, you know, at one point were. Uh, experimenting using self-experimentation but then when it came to plutonium you know it's reading uh on page 231 right langham observed we considered doing such experiments at one time but plutonium is considered to be sufficiently potentially dangerous and to discourage our doing absorption experiments upon ourselves now, if it's too dangerous to do upon yourself, then you can come to a logical conclusion that it would be dangerous to anyone else, but uh, especially when they were doing uh, experimentations on black, they just did not care. You know, <clears throat> and then they started to come up with these uh, pathological reasoning on who research subjects would be setting uh, guidelines uh, to use military personnel, prisoners, uh, more of on uh, patients that were next to death and uh, terminally ill, you know, cancer patients said that was morally acceptable. But you'll see that even after the medical board of review 
you know, came up with uh, an AEC policy that was, you know, that spelled out conditions uh, in using human subjects. Uh, the key word here, it said no substance known to be a susceptible, suspected of being poisonous or harmful could be utilized in research on human subjects unless each one of the following conditions were met. So how about putting out something that no human uh, subject would be used in research, but they actually gave a guideline to how they can use human uh, subjects. And then regardless to what policies that they came up with, um, some of them, they didn't even distribute it. You know, they didn't uh, uh, send it out to other scientists. So the policy itself, you know, didn't get disseminated. And even if it did, there's no evidence that any of the physicians adhered to uh, any of those uh, policies. And, you know, one of the uh, horrendous parts of this was between uh, 1963 and 71, Dr. Heller irradiated the gonads of 131 prisoners in Oregon. Uh, in the last part, say, including at least 66 Negro volunteers with radioactive thiodine. Uh, I have a problem with that because the way she's got Negro volunteers in parentheses. And I'd have to say I have a hard time believing any uh, the uh, black or Negro would volunteer for their gonads to be uh, uh, radiated. And another sickening part was giving the radiation to the kids in their oatmeal. And I didn't get a chance to look, you know, any do any extensive research on that, but I think that those uh, children were probably uh, mentally retarded or that they had some type of uh, special disabilities. And uh, some of these doses that they were uh, given to blacks, like in the TBI, the total body uh, irradiation, equivalent to 15,000 chest x-rays to the entire body. And then another doses <clears throat> is equivalent to 400 mammograms. You know, all of this is, would definitely cause cancer and um, they don't even know what the later effects are. They One thing is plutonium or uh, radium, whatever, is if it's ingested into the lungs, it's probably probably the worst uh, way that you can be uh, administered these poisons. But of course, they were doing that to black subjects. And um, that Eugene Sanger, you know, and Clarence Lushbaugh. You know, even his friend, Carl Morgan, who considered Sanger a friend and had worked with Lushbaum at Oak Ridge, said that I think the case of Clarence Lushbaum 
treatment of humans as guinea pigs, and Eugene Sanger at the Hospital of Cincinnati are some of the most terrible human studies I've ever heard of other than those that took place in Germany and a few in Japan during the war. And, you know, which brings up uh, another fact from the um, uh, recording at the beginning, you know, when they used mustard gas on the uh, black men. Mustard gas, they knew from World War One because in the book, A Higher Form of Killing, mustard gas was used as far back as World War One. So they knew the effects of it and that <clears throat> what it did to the lungs and all of this. It, but they still experimented on blacks knowing that what what the outcome would be. Um, Then I wanted to say something about the settlements. You know, when they, when the story breaks that they've been uh, using illegal experiments on people, and sometimes, you know, even after death, the families file a lawsuit. You know, it it, it pales in comparison because if you're looking at, uh, like on page uh, two thirty six, where. Uh, there was a long and bitter uh, fight for justice, finally culminated into $5 million in the 1999 settlement between 13 researchers and the subject's survivor. So, you know, and, well, another thing about this, the, in part of the agreement, they stipulated that the university erect a permanent memorial naming the victims. And in June 2000, it complied by installing a small, curiously dated plaque. They said that they were going to put a permanent memorial, but it ended up a plaque. And then they just put dedicated to the patients of the radiation experiment, 73 and 74, and listed the names of over 170 patients. But they put the plaque behind a dumpster and nestled in between the kitchen and a parking garage to let you know how they actually felt about it. And uh, uh, treating kids uh, with wingworm, putting radiation on their heads. See, in other words, the damage that that does to the brain, you would be uh, basically creating subjects, you know, for other experiments because when they come up with these guidelines that uh, terminally ill or mentally retarded or whatever uh, fit these guidelines for experimentation, then they just create some subjects, starting with the children, because if you damage their brain, you can imagine what we end up happening to them later. And this part of, you know, in the, in the black body radiation, uh, kudos for the DOE secretary, Hazel O'Leary, you know, it took, see this, uh, reiterates the, uh, fact that you always say whites are not ignorant about racism. They know exactly what they're doing. All these years, experimentations is going on. No white person ever did anything to try to stop this. Then when the DOE secretary, Hazel O'Leary came 
and she demanded, ordered the opening of the records. You know, uh, uh, the book says her forthrightness, you know, uh, may have saved a lot of lives. And it seems like somewhere that, you know, she took a shot at the uh, ad hoc committee that uh, uh, Clinton had uh, created. But Clinton came on apologizing in 95 and didn't even mention the uh, the race or the eth- ethical background of the uh, of the uh, victims. So, and one last thing, the Department of Labor, uh, well, they had this uh, South Carolina, uh, what was it, the Western House Savannah River Company, uh, had approximately 2,800 employees and women, approximately 2,800 of the 14,000 employees were black. Now, out of those 2,800, they were denied promotions, subject to racial graffiti, found nooses hanging in their lockers, were subject to higher radiation levels than whites. They even had an area they called the coon area where they would put the blacks so that they could intentionally be exposed to more radiation. and. On top of all of that, uh, you're on top of all the abuse and radi- uh, racism that they practice on these people. Then they uh, put them in areas where they could be exposed the most. And then a study came out on it. But in the end, I think that it was saying only about six out of 2,800 people, only about six of them was ever given any compensation for that. So I'll, uh, I'll mute my line. Maybe I'll get a chance to uh, talk some more about it. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks who have not chimed in, if you had commentary you wanted to share, uh, people we haven't heard from, feel free. Um, well, good evening to Gus, and good evening to all of the other callers. Um, let me see, this is also disjointed, but uh, I disagreed sort of with one line where, you know, they said, well, it makes sense, you know, all of the people in prison have always been black, you know, been always been minorities, but that's not true. That's not true. When slavery was on, you know, no one in prison, no one in prison was was really black then. Not really. The prisoners were full of white people because why would you worse waste a perfectly good black person and not have him out there making money for you personally? That's just a loss of income. So most of the people in prison before slavery were crazy white people. They weren't black people. That was after. That was after the war started. Um. And I remember saying before that I, I've noticed, I've never noticed before, but that there's always a, a direct prison pipeline when you have a state hospital. There's always a direct prison pipeline. There's always prisoners hanging around the halls. I mean, they're just there all the time. You know, you just you just get to the point where you just don't see it. But, 
that should be worrisome. That really should be worrisome because I don't think anybody asks questions. They just, you know, they just go on about their business. Um, and I, you know, thank you for playing Mr. Fuller again. I mean, just the thing about them lying about everything all the time, never telling the truth, just lie, 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 lie. And, you know, every once in a while you'll be reading online and you'll get a thread where white people are amazed that black people are still here and still alive. You know, they'll just go on and on about it. Why haven't they all committed suicide? Why aren't they all dead yet? There's so many diseases. That's because they know. They know the degree to which they have infested us with relentless and just just disease and bombarded us with all of these insults. They know that we should be dead by now because what they have done is just so monstrous. This book. This book, this book probably catches, what, 2%, maybe 8 or 9 They are amazed that we are still alive. Um, and then another thing that kind of supports that is the fact that our population just stays the same. It's always rolling around between 11%, 12%. You know, in surgery days, I mean surgery days, slavery days, it was always like 20%. But, uh, yeah. That was a lie, too, because they didn't want to pay taxes on us, so they way underreported those numbers. But now it's always hovering around 11%, 13%. And that's a lie. That's a lie. I, it, I know it's much higher than that. But they are amazed because they think it should be zero by now. Um, let me see what else. Oh, yeah. You know, that thing is very interesting when you were reading about the consent from 1947, the new consent policy, a lot of things were taking place around then, a lot of things, because after the war, that's when they started, you know, bringing all those Germans in, you know, with the paperclip thing. I don't think they made it official until 50-something, but they were bringing in all of these Germans, and, and all of those Germans were from, from birth to adult, especially weird psychopaths. You know, they were just breeding psychopaths just bringing them in from birth, depriving them of their parents and their family, and just trying to grow and educate the very best psychopaths. Germany, Germany was riddled with highly educated psychopaths. And so they were bringing all of those people over here, especially Texas. That's why Texas is so different. It is riddled with these German psychopaths. Even the soldiers they had and all the prison camps here, you know, they told them, hey, just walk, no problem. And then they bring in all of these high-ranking German, German officials, thousands and thousands of them. And they're here in Texas for the most part. I'm pretty sure they're all here. Um, so I think that's why after the war in 1947, I think that's why you saw these policies come in because you had a couple of white people feeling guilty saying, well, if we're going to bring in all these psychopaths, we should at least have some rules in place on our medical experimentation. You know, that'll be a good compromise. And then we can bring them all in. So I think that's probably where that came from. And the thing about the, the, the consent, that thing that says not only does a patient have to have informed consent, but their next kin has to have informed consent. Now, you don't really see them doing that. 
they do always ask for the next of kin. They always ask for the next of kin. If you don't put that next of kin on your paperwork, it will bounce back in the hospital. It is so important. So what that might be is like um, an occult consent, kind of like when you look at your checkbook and that little line at the bottom, you're thinking that's a line, and actually that's uh, an authorization for like a third-party removal, and it says, you know, authorization, and it doesn't. it's not just a line. It says it's an authorization. And so... Actually, I said, I'm going to look at that. I'm going to look next time I have an opportunity to be the uh, next to Ken. But that may be kind of like an occult consent from that necessary party, you know, that necessary next to Ken. It may not just be, hey, here's your next to Ken that's listed any more than your signature on a, on a check is just your signature. No, it is an authorization. So I think that that may be how that's operating because white people, you know, they make up these things and we don't know what it is. I think that's about it after the war. Okay. All right. I'll just mute myself now. Thank you. Right on. Right on. Uh, Folks that we have not heard from, people we have not heard from, do you have commentary? Anybody lingering on the line thought it saw some hands of people that we have not heard from. And if you do not have a hand up and you are listening again, please do not wait until we get to the bottom of the hour and then decide that you would like to share. Go ahead and get your hand up now. If you are listening, uh, if you think there's something that you want to comment on relative to the book, and please don't wait till we get to the end of the program and decide that you have commentary you would like to share. Anybody that we missed who has a hand up? I would assume they uh, are just listening for the time being. Uh, caller from Ohio, did you have commentary? Yeah, just a couple of things. First, hello to you, Gus, the host, and to all the listening callers. Mm. Excuse me. Um, I just want to say first, you know, thank you for, you know, doing this book. I tried to read this book a couple of years ago, and when I first got it, I, you know, sort of started the first chapter, I would just pick different chapters and go through and I I just could not read it. I would read certain sections. I just could not read the book. And I, it was a library book. And I remember I, I put it on the back seat of my car. And for about like two weeks, I drove around with this book on the back seat of my car because the thing is, I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book. And I just never could read it because it is just so devastating. So it's hard for me to listen to it. But I, I seem to be able to listen to it better than I can read the book. So I just really want to thank you doing this book because I just, you know, for me, it's just that these people are just pure evil. Even just like the, to, with the, uh, the talk, the chapter that talks about like the recompense uh, for the people that they did these things to, you know, and I mean, you know, the plaque that's in the back by the dumpster between the parking lot, you know, a little plaque, no names, just the patients. It's just evil personified, but there are just a couple of things, some things I just want to say. Um, what Ron mentioned, the very first caller you had tonight, what he mentioned about that drug road game or whatever the name of it is. And um, I just happened to listen to a, a YouTube video of a young brother. His name is Young Pharaoh, and he also has a, a Facebook page called his name Sandra Bland. 
and he has a video talking about the same thing. And he was saying that if you look up the Reese's monkey, and, and I'm old enough to know, and I know maybe some of the callers on the line are old enough to know that when I'll be 60 at the end of, of next month. So just to show you, back when I was like 10 or 11, I can remember being in school and a lot of talk about the Reese's monkey. And this this young brother, young Pharaoh, he talks about basically like, like Ross was saying that here's a woman who's pregnant and the woman's blood, the woman's blood is affecting the child that she's carrying. And so she has to take this drug literally to keep from killing the child. And so he was just, you know, and so, you know, young Pharaoh was like, do you know, there's something going on with these people. And um, I remember looking at a video where Dr. Laila Africa says that he was talking about white people. And he says, we don't know where they come from. They show up in the world about like 4,000 B.C. And he says, they're the animals that we call humans. So when I, when I listen to this book, and this is one of the good things of listening to it as opposed to, at least for me as opposed to reading, is that what I'm, what I'm hearing is here are these animals that we call people who literally are trying to destroy us, destroy our health, as they use the, the information that they gain to build themselves up. And it is something to hear, like where Karma just said that, uh, and I think about three weeks ago listening at, I think the was was said something about by the year 2000, we would be gone. So it's kind of like Karma said that, you know, they, they still, they're a marvel. Why are these people here? And that's why, like she also said too, when they want to play dumb, like, oh, we don't know nothing about racism. What are y'all talking about? You know, but when you can sit up and, and talk about, how are they still living? How are they surviving? And when, you know, they know all the stuff that we're doing to them, and yet they still survive. So, you know, I, I just wanted to um, comment on that and then also say in terms of recompense, you know, if you destroy my health and then say, I don't even care if you say, well, I want to give you $5 million. It's nothing if you destroy my health. Radiation destroys the bone. And, and so it, it, some of, like some of the examples in the book that she gave that some of these people were dead in like 24 hours, a week, a month, you know, so it destroys the bone. And, and I will say this, though, too, it makes me think about today people who are diagnosed with cancer and do chemotherapy or do radiation therapy. Why you call yourself killer of cancer, now I can kind of see why a lot of people who have cancer even go, go to remission for some people. That chances are when they die, they will eventually die from cancer. And it's probably, like you said, the radiation, like she said, the radiation was destroying the, destroying the bone, the bone marrow. And then and I'll say this and I'll mute myself. The bit about destroying the bone marrow, said so the bone marrow produces the red blood cells, and basically these people are dropping dead right after, you know, some of these so-called tests. So, I mean, I, we're just dealing with... I, I don't even know if, if evil is, is a good enough word to describe these people. I just can't think of a word to describe these, as Dr. Laila Africa would say, these animals that we call humans. Thank you. I'll mute myself with that. Right on. Right on. Uh, for other folks uh, that we haven't heard from, if you would like to chime in before we do the second audio clip, uh, you should dial in now, get your hand up, press star six. Uh, if you have commentary, and we'll be sure to get you on the line before we get to the second audio clip. Uh, some of the things uh, that stood out that I wanted to share 
Uh, I know, at least for myself, uh, why I've been saying this is, I think, in my top ten now in terms of best books that I've read uh, that give accurate information about racism will help you get a lot of clarity about what racism is, how it works, what does it mean to be white. Um, A lot of the information that's covered in this book, um, I am familiar with these subjects or familiar with authors that she has cited. Uh, The subtitle that she's exactly where we're going to pick up at for the second audio segment, the very first sentence. In 1998, Alan Hornblum published Acres of Skin. Alan Hornblum has been a guest on this program. Uh, We discussed that book, Acres of Skin, and his other book, Sentenced to Science, and he brought one of the prisoners uh, from Holmesburg on in Pennsylvania to talk about uh, the horrors uh, that he went through. And it's been my experience, I think, if you read a book where you uh, have more information about the subjects that are going to be covered, uh, you will enjoy it more. You will get a lot more out of it. Uh, You'll have a much more comprehensive, uh, in-depth understanding uh, of the topics being covered, uh, and I know that's certainly been the uh, been the case for me, uh, particularly reading this book now. Uh, when over the years uh, on the cows, we've had a lot of these people uh, as guests on the program. Even again, uh, in the audio segment we started with today, you heard from Dorothy Roberts. She's been on the program repeatedly. Moving forward, um, I thought the uh, aspect about the next of kin giving consent it reminded me of another guest who's been on the program for Neil Randall who recommended uh, some of the other folks who came uh, on to the cows down the road dealing with racism and healthcare uh, but that was one of the major suggestions that she gave uh, to make sure if you have to go to the hospital for any reason that you take someone with you who is not sick uh, who can be an advocate uh, on your behalf and they don't have to have uh, a PhD they don't have to be a doctor Uh, Just them being there to ask questions and observe and to advocate for you. Uh, You are not in your best functioning state if you are ill. So you're not going to be able to think clearly and make the best decisions. Just having that extra person there uh, can do wonders uh, to stop a lot of the antics, uh, terrorism that goes on uh, when we have to go to the hospital and deal with these racists in their white lab coats. Um, Let's see, even the portion where she talked about black people having richer antibodies, uh, that for me stood out when you hear a lot about uh, black people having greater genetic diversity. Uh, I hear this on a regular basis, that there's greater genetic diversity amongst black people uh, as opposed to between black people and white people and even amongst other white people. Uh, That always stands out to me, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, where she talks about uh, melanin-dominant humans uh, and how white people give the myth that they are genetically superior when nothing could be further from the truth and, in my opinion, why they have to have uh, sexual intercourse with black people. They have got to get access to that genetically rich material uh, that melanin-dominant humans possess. If they didn't have it, that there would be even more uh, genetic uh, difficulties and mutations uh, amongst the group of individuals who classify themselves as white. Uh, Let's see... Yeah, you already touched on the plaque uh, that they put behind the dumpster uh, on the campus. Uh, let's see. Yeah, this this section where it said uh, they were talking about they would use some of the patients. This was at the Virginia Medical College, Medical College of Virginia, where it said some of uh, some were charity patients who had been severely burned in accidents, accidents, and whose use as experimental material. Not even uh, experimental subjects or experimental people, experimental material 
uh, reminded me, I think Roz pointed out last week, where they used the term products to refer to black people that were being mauled in these studies. Uh, but experimental material constituted payment for their care by the MCV staff. Uh, but MCV researchers deliberately caused third-degree burns to the skin of other patients uh, at Dooley, a charity, uh, charity hospital for black children. Uh, just the unbounded depths of savagery uh, that whites subject black people to and have done so for a long time. I think they even talked about some of this happening at New Orleans Charity Hospital, which we talked about way back with uh, Katrina, just long-running terrorism targeting black people. Um, and even in this guise to get you that, well, you owe us. You have to do this because we're, we're looking out for you since we're, you know, giving some charitable service to you niggers that, you know, you have to pay us in some way. So you have to come and be uh, a guinea pig in our testing. That's the way that they kind of get you with that sort of logic as though you, uh, you're just mooching off of us. So there has to be some means for you paying back for the services that you're getting. Um, yeah, I thought it was significant as well where they lied, uh, again, the deception saying that the technicians, when they were doing these x-rays and exposing black people to uh, substantially higher levels of radiation, that black people have tougher skins and they can take it and denser bones, uh, and saying that, uh, that they had not been told to do this, uh, when then it turns out, in fact, that they had. Uh, been taught to do this and for me that is just that is what a system of white supremacy looks like that is what a white supremacist code looks like where this ends up being the standard operating procedure as is taught Uh, whether it's kindergarten eighth grade graduate school we are taught we are instructed about how we're going to about terrorizing maintaining our system of white supremacy and dominating negroes that is code right there and a lot of times it's hidden you have to work you have to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and oh there it is right there this is how we're going to radiate the niggers and poison them that way um the higher proportions of black people being used that's consistent i really appreciate that she's pointed that out consistently uh and just looking at the numbers uh because i think a lot of times i know even alan hornbloom pointed that out when he was on the program and he was talking about the experiments that they conducted uh, at holmesburg that there were white people that were included in those experiments but just continuing to hammer home black people were used disproportionately way higher than their percentage of the population and that is done deliberately and it's not that whites do not maul and mistreat other white people certainly they do but that's supposed to be minimized the people that are supposed to be terrorized the people that we're supposed to maul and mutilate with no regard for their rights ethical treatment or anything that's the niggers the dark people of the planet and that's just consistent you see that played out over centuries in this book um oh i thought it was beautiful when you talk about deliberate uh, when Slick Willie, right on the day that he's giving the eulogy at Muhammad Ali's memorial service, Slick Willie gives, uh, yes, we will, we will do it. He also did the apology. I played that clip uh, before where he did the apology for the Tuskegee syphilis study, but he gives this apology for these radiation experiments. And it just happens to coincidentally be timed within hours of the O.J. Simpson trial, like, Wow, what a coincidence that it would probably happen at a time when absolutely nobody would be paying attention to this at all, even though he didn't mention the racial elements. But it just happens to coincide with when the entire country is going to be riveted on some no good nigra uh, who has killed a white woman, uh, or actually two white people, but a white woman and then this other white dude as well, uh, in my opinion. Slick Willie at his finest. Uh, I'm sure that that was not a coincidence, well planned act of racism, uh, in my opinion. Um, 
no uh, no criminal charges. That's something as well. I think we talked about that. That's also been long running pattern throughout this book, regardless of what it is, regardless of how barbarous uh, the experiments, uh, black females being sterilized, uh, black people being mauled and allowed to have syphilis for years on end with no scientific benefit. Nobody is going to jail. No prosecutions. Doesn't matter. Gun a black person down in the street, poison them, poison the whole community, poison their what? Nobody's going to jail. <laughs> Whatever, it's just some niggers. Uh, another, in my opinion, where she was talking about the in South Carolina, the home of the great Dylan Stormroof and Ben Pitchfork Tillman, former governor down in South Carolina, uh, where she talked about the facility where they had the black people with all these ridiculous, uh, dangerous conditions where they were exposed to higher levels of radiation and then the nooses and everything else that went around it. I also don't think it's a coincidence that they were put in the area where they were exposed to higher radiation and designated the Coon area. I don't think that that was uh, just accident, mere coincidence. I think that the white people, they knew that, yes, they're being poisoned. <laughs> we are going to totally uh, fry those negros, the coons, uh, in that area, and we'll have our little running racist joke calling it that. Not only are you not going to get promoted, not only are you not going to get your raises, uh, you might be killed uh, working here, coons. <laughs> and just laughing amongst themselves. Again, you can't do all that and be ignorant about racism. I actually checked as uh, we were reading. Again, you should really make an effort to check uh, some of the uh, footnotes as we read. It is uh, just astounding, uh, some of the other books uh, that are mentioned and articles and what have you. Sometimes she even has whole links uh, to some of this material uh, as we read. Uh, they have many uh, different articles that are talking uh, about what happened uh, at this facility down in South Carolina. Uh, 60 Minutes apparently did a special. Uh, one of the segments that I found on this is titled Southern Heritage Condemned in the Workplace. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I mean this just to give a little background. So a South Carolina man believes he's being discriminated against by his employer because of his affiliation with a group that celebrates its Southern heritage. Richard Smith's employer said the company's just enforcing its rules of conduct. Smith is a proud member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and the whole controversy began last November when his employer, Westinghouse Savannah River Company, reprimanded him for displaying the traditional Georgia state flag in his office. According to Smith, this is a white man. Human resources forced him to remove the state flag because it contained a Confederate battle flag in the background, and that may be offensive to his fellow employees. Smith said the controversy erupted again this past March when a Hangman's noose was found in his workspace, of which he denies any knowledge or ownership. At the same time, Smith said someone placed a bumper sticker with a Confederate image on the bumper of a black co-worker's truck. I guess what's important prompted them to look a little more closely at me, he said. By Smith's account, Westinghouse management entered his office while he was away and began an investigation of the two mysterious racist incidents. He said the company compelled photographs compiled photographs of items that could be considered offensive to black co-workers. While Smith said the investigation proved his innocence in both the noose and bumper sticker incident, he said the company determined that he had constructed an offensive shrine in his office. That so-called shrine, he said, included a box of Winn-Dixie brand Georgia crackers, a bottle of Maurice's barbecue sauce, and a newspaper clipping... <laughs> and newspaper clippings featuring Representative Cynthia McKinney and activist Al Sharpton. 
If anyone, Smith said, his white co-workers should be offended by the Georgia crackers in his desk. After all, he said the term cracker has historically been used to demean whites. But they turned it around to make it fit their complaint, Smith said. It was deemed that it suggested slavery. He said the newspaper clippings that he was reprimanded for weren't offensive. They just featured some politicians who were black. Smith said that one of the articles showed Al Sharpton and Atlanta Mayor Bill Campbell posing together at a conference in Atlanta where they both declared that 9-11 didn't mean a thing to them because they're not part of America. Everybody needs to know about that as far as I'm concerned, he said. I will stop there. It goes on to give uh, more information, but this is the same company where they had the uh, the coon area for the black people being radiated in. Again, Dylan Stormroof and Ben Tillman's South Carolina. Uh, anything else I will get in from Chapter 10 before moving forward? Oh, yeah. The chapter, I thought that was beautiful. She has some really outstanding quotes to kind of kick off all of her chapters in the chapter at the beginning where she co- uh, quotes from the uh, British Medical Journal, journal uh, January of 1963, uh, where it says criminals in our penitentiaries are fine experimental material and much cheaper than chimpanzees. Harambi is worth more than a black person, for sure, always. Black child, black convict, black grandmother, anybody, anything is worth more than a black person. Um, and you can double down on that when she's uh, talking about Jesse Williams, one of the uh, inmates who was experimented on, where he said, I feel like I'm on display in the zoo sometimes. Again, Harambi is worth more than a black person. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, let's see. We had a person who dialed in uh, that we had not heard from. Uh, caller in Michigan, did you have commentary you wanted to share? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to all the callers and listeners. Um, I definitely wanted to um, agree with the caller. I think it was in Ohio. Um, I'm really having a difficult time with this book. I'm reading this book, and it actually just came uh, this week. So now I'm able to really dive into the book. And as I um, read this book, I'm just so happen to live, you know, across the street from a, a hospital. And this is, it's just, this book is devastating. You know, I'm just now uh, re-entering into the so-called workforce. So I appreciate your workplace racism call, but I find myself um, at this point, I'm being asked about uh, healthcare plans and, uh, you know, filling out paperwork and huge contributions out of my paycheck to, you know, healthcare plans and reading this book. Oh my goodness. um, It's just, it's, it's really scary because I'm wondering, like, wow, how much financially am I getting ready to contribute to all of this mistreatment, basically, to myself and um, non-white people for for this? The, it's just sickening. Um, I had emailed you, and you you know you you are aware of you know me being contacted to try to um, about this bone marrow. I had randomly was getting harassed by this, you know, people saying I signed a consent to donate bone marrow. And I was really, I almost was considering it because I wanted to know if it was for a black person. Um, And so 
I don't remember signing the consent. I have no recollection, but for some reason they were harassing me saying they found a match. I have a match and we want you to consider donating a bone marrow. And I'm like, well, the first question I had was, is it a black person? They refused to give me the race of the person. And just reading this, it, oh my goodness, I'm glad that I didn't go through with it. Um, it's just so much that I'm ignorant about in the healthcare field, and this book is opening up my eyes. So I'm just, um, I'm, I'm learning, and this is very constructive. And um, I'm just going to, you know, continue to, I, I think this book should be in every household. Um, it's such an eye-opener, and I'm just so thankful to the listeners for selecting this book to read, and I'll mute my line. Here, 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 here. Uh, before we get to the second audio clip, uh, did uh, folks have anything uh, relatively concise they wanted to get to before we get to the second audio segment? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening to the host, the callers, the listeners. I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. Um, I absolutely concur with the caller in Ohio. A few Sometime back, I attempted to read this book. Um, I live in New York City. I travel on public transportation, um, most often the trains. And I remember attempting to read the book and just becoming really, really, really upset. Um, Tearful at some points, but for the most part, just becoming extremely angry. And, of course, there are white people around in New York City, so I have to refrain from reading the book. I have to say that listening to the book is a lot easier than reading it. When I am in my travel, if I happen to miss the call-in, I usually listen to the archives um, via um, iTunes. Additionally, I wanted to add, um, I have called in for workplace racism yesterday. I used to work at um, a teaching hospital. medical school and I recall one of the professors she looks very white she had told me that she has some black in her ancestry and she's not just a professor but she's also she also attends to patients at the hospital at the medical school and she had told me that the previous president prior to the black president who is currently and holding the position, he was a white male, I think, of Italian descent. She said, you know, he was such a racist. And I told him to his face, he was such a racist. And I asked him, how do you attend, how can you properly attend to your patients with this type of attitude? So this woman who told me that she has black in her ancestry who looks very white, She told me she complained to the board of directors and whomever else she did, and she said, you know, within two weeks, he was gone as a president. Now he still works for the institution, but he's no longer the president, so now they've replaced this racist white president with a black president, and I forgot to mention, too, that this black president, who's also a medical doctor, is married to a white woman. So that explains why he had the white assistant, white female assistant. Additionally, I just wanted to add, I will conclude. Um, I think it's important that if you feel like you have to take medicine, 
I think it's really important to read the package inserts. I recall a doctor prescribing something to me, and I had mentioned to him, I said, listen, a lot of the um, side effects, I don't approve of it, so I'm not going to take it because I had to have a follow-up with him, and he asked me how come I hadn't taken the medication, and I said, well, the medication does such, such, and such, and he just laughed at me. He was like, oh, you're being ridiculous. This is what he's telling me. I'm thinking I'm, a, I'm an informed consumer, an informed patient. He's telling me that I'm ridiculous because the side effects were extremely crazy. One of the side effects was that it affected the ozone layer, and it was something that you actually spray up your nose and inhale. So I said, well, if it affects the ozone layer, I can't imagine what this would do to me. And he just was like, oh, you're just being ridiculous. Anyway, he got his just desserts. He passed away from cancer. I will mute my line. Thank you. Hmm. I think they said that about Elmer Allen uh, from last week, the uh, blackmail where they took his leg, that he was just some crazy nigra making up excuses about what doctors were uh, trying to do to him. Standard operating procedure. Uh, with that, uh, just to make sure that we have uh, ample time, I uh, know folks uh, still like to dial in uh, kind of last minute. Uh, we will start the second audio clip. Uh, if you have other commentary that you did not get to share, uh, just make a note. Uh, we will have ample time for folks to share once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, this, uh, you can, again, just go back in the uh, archive. I think this is one of the few times uh, we have done a book where I just get to say, oh, yeah, we had this person and this person and this person. This is another one. You can go back in the archives uh, the summer of 2014. This was right in the middle of the Ferguson hubbub uh, where we had Mr. Alan Hornblum on the program along with uh, one of the inmates, former inmates uh, from Holmberg Prison, uh, talking about all of these uh, gruesome experiments. Uh, he has multiple books. I would encourage uh, folks to read those books as well. Uh, Sentenced to Science uh, and then Acres of Skin. I read Acres of Skin uh, when we were thrown off the air uh, in 2007 in our hiatus. This was one of the first books uh, that I read. It is equally stunning. And I think if you get the updated edition, I think Harriet Washington might have contributed uh, a foreword or some insight. I'd have to double check, but I think she might have pinned a word, uh, depending on which edition of Acres of Skin you get. And I think she also wrote an addendum in James Jones' Bad Blood, uh, which uh, they have multiple editions. I think if you catch a newer version, I think she wrote uh, an extra segment in that as well. But uh, just flexing her, uh, her brilliance uh, on many different fronts. Uh, we will get started. We're in Chapter 10. The subheading is Dark Days. At Holmesburg Prison. Holmesburg Prison is in Pennsylvania. Uh, this is Chapter 10, Medical Apartheid, Harriet E. Washington, Context of White Supremacy. Dark Days at Holmesburg Prison. In 1998, Alan Hornblum published Acres of Skin, which documents the abusive experimentation conducted at Philadelphia's Holmesburg Prison Complex by Dr. Albert M. Kligman between the 1950s and 1970s. Most of this research was practiced upon African-American men, says Hornblum. Not only that, but they were used for the worst, most dangerous experiments. Kligman, a dermatologist, was initially invited to Holmesburg Prison in 1951 to treat an outbreak of athlete's foot. But his initial reaction to Holmesburg was far from therapeutic and gave Hornblum's book its title. 
All I saw before me were acres of skin. It was like a farmer seeing a fertile field for the first time. Soon, Kligman was inducing foot fungus, not treating it, because he saw the opportunity to conduct lucrative experiments upon thousands of captive bodies for at least 33 major pharmaceutical and cosmetic companies, such as Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Helena Rubinstein, and DuPont. During World War II, prisoners had been commonly used as research subjects, and after the war, the United States was the only nation in the world continuing to legally use prisoners in clinical trials. Federal, pharmaceutical, and cosmetic companies' money catalyzed a 30-year boom in research with prisoners. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, Kligman gained exclusive experimental use of inmate bodies, testing 153 experimental drugs between 1962 and 1966 alone. 75% of Holmesburg's inmate population, including Jesse Williams, were administered cosmetics, powders, and shampoos that caused baldness, extensive scarring, and permanent skin and nail injury. Fingernails were removed or deformed by punch biopsies, in which a physician employs a special forceps, or a biopsy punch, to obtain a full-thickness circular sample of skin or nail. The subject's backs were so covered by flailed, discolored, and scarred skin from various patch tests of chemicals that the distinctive checkerboard, or striped skin, was a sure tip-off that the man was an ex-con. If you ever saw guys on the beach, you would know where the hell they've been, explained former guard Joseph Dade. Withers Ponton, a lifer in his 80s, complained of a back all marked up with bad blackheads and scars after a quarter century of patch tests. That first test nearly killed me. It was so painful I nearly went through the wall. But he eventually participated in more than 50 tests during a 40-month stint at a county jail for which he earned $7,000. When Kligman used prisoners to devise the anti-acne medication Retin-A, it made him a millionaire. Jailed subjects were also inoculated with herpes, vaccinia, and wart viruses, and were exposed to staphylococcus and manilia. Their skin was exposed to everything from radioisotopes to temperature extremes. Dow Chemical Company also paid Kligman to test dioxin, a suspected carcinogen, which he applied to the skin of 70 prisoners, mostly black. He also inoculated men with syphilis, gonorrhea, malaria, and amoebic dysentery. Each participant earned anywhere from $10 to $700, depending upon the length, danger, and unpleasantness of the research. But in the fall of 1965, the FDA became alarmed when the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, published Kligman's article based on research in which he covered inmates' torsos with the banned substance dimethyl sulfoxide, DSMO, an oily industrial solvent. The FDA began scrutinizing his work, and its documents cite irregularities and falsification of reports, alarm over Kligman's extremely large number of investigations, and concern that he was dabbling in areas far removed from his specialty, dermatology. 
FDA documents also condemned Kligman's practice of routinely enrolling inmates in multiple studies simultaneously, which multiplied their health risks and clouded the source of any adverse effects. What's more, Kligman's record-keeping discrepancies were rife. He, like many other prison investigators, destroyed or lost medical files. This allowed them to claim later, among other things, that African Americans were not disproportionately represented in abusive procedures. On July 19th, the FDA removed Kligman from its list of approved researchers and notified sponsors that he no longer was eligible to perform drug testing. But just a month later, the FDA restored his privileges. The FDA's concern that Kligman was venturing too far afield of dermatology, his area of expertise, was certainly warranted. He began performing chemical warfare tests for the Army and the CIA, using psychotropic agents. Perhaps the most harrowing experimental accounts are those of CIA mind control experiments, in which psychoactive substances, including Schedule II drugs, those with a high abuse risk, were administered to inmates as part of the MKUltra program, a CIA research program conducted from 1953 through the 1970s to produce the perfect truth drug for interrogating Soviet intelligence operatives. According to Kligman's own statements, he was operating essentially unregulated, and with inmates who participated because they had been told neither the nature of the tests nor the risks they were taking. In 1972, he enthused, It was years before the authorities knew that I was conducting various studies on prisoner volunteers. Things were simple then. Informed consent was unheard of. No one asked me what I was doing. It was a wonderful time. The government tests were conducted from three trailers on the prison grounds. Some inmates gave these tests a wide berth because it was rumored that they involved LSD and drove men crazy. But others eventually entered them, drawn by the money, which was more than what was paid for skin tests. Half of these subjects reported frightening hallucinations that lasted for days. But prisoners say that they were never given consent forms or told what drugs they were being given. Edward Anthony, a black Holmesburg inmate during the mid-1960s, said that after he suffered rashes from the skin tests, he moved on to the more lucrative army experiments. I don't remember much of what happened after I was given the injection, he said. But I know once it wore off, I was a different person than before. I used to be a mild-mannered person, but now I have drastic mood swings and have trouble controlling my temper. Jesse Williams gives a similar account of his time in the trailers. I used to be into non-confrontational crimes, burglary, stealing cars. But after the mind tests, I was a different person, more confrontational. I would go to bars actively seeking trouble. I was never like that before. Some drugs caused temporary paralysis or helplessness, or even placed the subject into a catatonic state, from which he could neither communicate nor react to his surroundings. Others caused prolonged nausea, and still others, such as the drugs Williams and Anthony took, provoked long-term violent behavior. We still cannot know which drugs the men were given because they were investigational and identified only by number. The test results are classified, 
but the army acknowledges that it conducted such experiments at Holmesburg. There was limited army involvement with the University of Pennsylvania many years ago, admitted Lieutenant Colonel Bill Wheelahan, a Pentagon spokesman. The army does not engage in this type of medical research today. In a 1973 congressional hearing on human experimentation, the Senate Labor and Public Welfare Committee's Health Subcommittee heard testimony from former Holmesburg inmates Leotis Jones and Alan Lawson, who charged the university was deceptive in the handling of consent procedures and informing inmates of possible risks. In January 1974, the Philadelphia Prison System's Board of Trustees terminated the program. Twenty-four years later, when Acres of Skin was published, many former subjects realized for the first time that they had rights as experimental subjects and could sue the University of Pennsylvania, Kligman's home institution, despite the indemnification waivers that some had signed. In September 2000, 298 former Holmesburg prisoners filed a class-action lawsuit against the university, Johnson & Johnson, Dow Chemical Company, Dr. Kligman and his company, Ivy Research Labs, and the city of Philadelphia. But the years and the experiments had taken their physical toll. Most subjects are dead, and their survivors, now in their 50s and 60s, suffer from skin and nail problems, breathing difficulties, cancers, and stubborn, sometimes unidentified infections. Seventy former inmates have joined as Community Assistance for Prisoners, to pursue legal redress, heartened by the $2.4 million settlement awarded in 2000 to Washington State prison inmates, whose testicles had been cut and irradiated between 1963 and 1973. But the Holmesburg suit has been stymied by the statute of limitations. The University of Pennsylvania insists that its research was ethical because the inmates gave informed consent signed waivers, and took payment. Senior Vice Dean Richard Tannen, M.D., of the University Medical Center, contends that because human research was widely accepted at the time of the Holmesburg experiments, Kligman was not considered to be in violation of any Hippocratic ideals. The hospital offered the men free evaluations and treatment, should its doctors find a causal relationship between the experiments and their current ailments. Jesse Williams responded, We don't trust them. How can we? Kligman doesn't respond to interview requests, but he defended his work in a prepared 1997 statement. To the best of my knowledge, the result of those experiments advanced our knowledge of the pathogenesis of skin disease, and no long-term harm was done to any person who voluntarily participated in the research program. Holmesburg was no anomaly. In 1952, Chester M. Southam of the Sloan Kettering Institute injected at least 396 inmates at Ohio State Prison, more than 180 of them black, with live human cancer cells. Southam said he wished to study the process by which healthy bodies neutralized and killed off cancer cells. One of the sponsors for Southam's research was the National Institutes of Health, which also sponsored the PHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. Southam assured inmates that the experiments were perfectly safe because any cancer that took 
would spread slowly and could be removed surgically. Inmates also were used in flawed blood plasma trials, testing high-volume plasmapheresis, transfusions utilizing large amounts of plasma, between 1967 and 1969 throughout the state of Alabama. The study was managed by Dr. Austin R. Stowe at Kilby, Draper, and McAllister prisons, very sloppily by all accounts. According to the New York Times, there was no informed consent and no accurate records were kept, so no racial breakdowns of his subjects are available. The record-keeping and the management of the study were so poor that many men sickened and died not from experimental risks, but from simple poor hygiene and from plasma transfusions of the wrong blood type. Sterile technique was all but ignored by the poorly trained technicians, and the laboratory, where blood and fluids pooled on the floors and stained every available surface, was filthy. As a result, 28% of the subjects developed hepatitis, in contrast to only 1% of inmates who were not subjects. Dr. Stowe was expelled several times from hospitals and prisons after his subjects sickened and died from a variety of diseases, but not before he netted roughly $2 million in profits. In other prisons across the nation, hundreds of black and white inmates were subjected to flash burns, burns caused by excessive skin or corneal exposure to heat radiation, rather than the direct application of heated tools. Burns were specifically inflicted upon African Americans at sites such as the cornea of the eyes, where they sometimes led to permanent vision problems, forearms, and backs, because scientists wished to learn how thermal radiation affected darker skins as opposed to white skin. Some of these experiments duplicated the experiments conducted by the Medical College of Virginia, which were described in Chapter 9. Often under the guise of treatment, psychiatric experimentation with imprisoned African Americans has spanned the poles of barbarity and sophisticated personality destruction. In the 1950s, Tulane University psychiatrist Dr. Robert Heath selected black prisoners specifically for use in psychosurgery experiments. These involved implanting electrodes into inmates' brains to repeatedly stimulate their pleasure centers. Heath also conducted CIA-funded drug experiments, which included LSD and a drug called bulbocapnine. In high doses, bulbocapnine produces catatonia and stupor, a statue-like state, which Heath and his associate Harry Bailey, M.D., thought would be useful for controlling violent prisoners. According to one memo, the CIA sought information as to whether the drug could cause loss of speech, loss of sensitivity to pain, loss of memory, loss of willpower, and an increase in toxicity in persons with a weak type of central nervous system. They tested the drug exclusively on African-American prisoners, whom Bailey routinely referred to as niggers, at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Engineered Invisibility? Despite the extensive history of using black bodies as research subjects, despite the consistently high African-American population in prisons, despite the popularity of research studies with a racial emphasis, 
and despite the penchant for using blacks in the most dangerous or distasteful experiments, jailed African-American research subjects remained largely invisible in the medical and popular literature until the 1960s. In his book, Undue Risk, Jonathan Moreno writes that African-Americans were usually excluded from earlier prison studies. Ironically, prison research in the United States, including the testicular irradiation research conducted by Dr. Carl G. Heller and his colleagues during the 1960s, was generally confined to white men because participating in prison research was considered a privilege. It was denied to minorities, at least until the civil rights movement succeeded in equalizing social opportunities for African Americans, including research opportunities. Even the report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, ACHRE, discussed in Chapter 9, agreed, noting, In 1975, the National Commission carefully examined the racial composition of the research subjects at a prison with a major drug testing program. The Commission found that African Americans made up only 31% of the subject population, while this racial minority comprised 68% of the general prison population. The ACHRE's broad suggestion that blacks were underrepresented in prison medical experimentation is fatally weakened by the fact that the Commission looked at only one unnamed prison experiment at one point in time, and thus was not representative. But even the straw man the ACHRE set up demonstrates the disproportionate use of African Americans in prison research. Black Americans in 1975 constituted only about 11% of the U.S. population, so that the 31% utilized in this prison's experiment meant that African Americans were subjected to research at a rate just under three times higher than their presence in the nation's population. The ACHRE looked at this high black experimentation rate only in comparison to the even higher black incarceration rate. This is myopic, because it looks only at the artificial universe of prisons, rather than at the entire community of African Americans. This is an essentially communitarian fallacy, which means that the analyses have ignored the most cohesive affected community, the community of African Americans, not the community of prison inmates. Moreover, although scientists' early prison research records were notoriously sloppy and frequently lost, extant records do make specific references to black prison subjects. Also, those researchers who had a dearth of black subjects, such as Heller, complained of their frustrations in gaining a more diverse subject population, suggesting that they considered the inclusion of African-American prisoners in research the norm. However, various prison studies had different racial compositions, and a few recorded experiments were designed as all-white, just as some used only blacks or mostly blacks. Chapter 6 has already described how Joseph Goldberger, M.D., chose to induce pellagra only in white prison inmates to dramatize that pellagra was not a black disease, but would strike malnourished whites as well. Other medical experiments were reserved for African Americans, and these were often the most risky and painful, explains Hornblum. 
at the Holmesburg Prison Complex, where decisions about who participated in particular experiments were often left to inmate assistants, he explains, It is possible that the racism in American culture was reflected in the inmates' decisions about who participated in a given test. For example, only healthy colored male volunteers were permitted to enroll in a protocol for one 1957 Philadelphia experiment to promote the inoculation of human skin with herpes simplex and herpes zoster, which were painful, incurable viral infections. However, Another Holmesburg experiment, which targeted young white volunteers, required only that they lower an arm into a detergent, sodium lauryl sulfate found in many shampoos, for an hour daily over 55 consecutive days. Prison researchers often veiled the racial composition of their research population for the same reason that Marion Sims once hid the racial composition of his vesicovaginal fistula patients concerned that scientists would appear to exploit powerless black patients. For example, when researchers wrote journal articles about the approximately 15,000 Maryland inmates of state juvenile institutions subjected to genetic tests for XYY syndrome, 85% of whom were black, they focused upon the mostly white minority subset of this research program to hide this true racial composition of the experiment as will be detailed in Chapter 11. Perhaps the belief that black prisoners were exempt from early experimentation can best be understood as emanating from such carefully maintained invisibility. Stripped of their freedom, their civil rights, and their family and community connections, black prison subjects were almost as legally invisible as the slaves in the antebellum experiments their invisibility was perpetuated in no small measure by the news media, which gave most Americans their only window into prison research. Until the 1970s, the early news coverage of prison research was almost universally laudatory. Researchers and prison administrators welcomed journalists' determination to celebrate the heroism of criminals who submitted themselves to medical experimentation. New York Times profiles of incarcerated volunteers are all of white men, such as Sing Sing lifer Louis Boy. In 1949, the Times sympathetically chronicled the risky and medically unsubstantiated experiment to which Boy submitted in an attempt to save the life of an eight-year-old cancer-ridden girl. Boy lay on a gurney next to the dying girl while their circulatory systems were joined by rubber tubing so that his body could act as a filter for her poisoned blood. The girl died, but Boy survived, and news articles strongly suggested that his selfless act had helped to expiate his crimes. The press attention generated intense human interest, culminating in Boy's Christmas-time pardon. In Illinois, Statesville inmate Nathan Leopold half of the infamous Leopold and Loeb thrill-killing duo, had been the nefarious architect of the highly publicized crime of the century, the coolly executed 1924 kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks, whom they dispassionately bludgeoned to death and discarded in a marsh on Chicago's south side. But profiles in the New York Times and other newspapers 
detailed his key role in recruiting other inmates to join malaria experiments and in signing inmates up for potentially sight-saving corneal donations. In his memoir, Life Plus 99 Years, Leopold boasted of his prison research roles, and this coverage helped to transform his thrill-killer image and boosted his successful parole bid in 1958. But this hagiographic approach to inmate subjects had the curious effect of effacing the participation of black prisoners in medical research from the period between the World Wars until the mid-1970s. News accounts do not refer to black participation, and the images gracing these peons to social redemption are of white inmates lying on gurneys. In Life magazine's profile of Dr. Kligman's laboratories, and New York Times photos of inmates queued up to give blood or tissue. No discernibly black bodies appear. Black volunteers may have been ignored because physicians were nearly always white males who, when approached for the name of an inmate to profile, proffered a white male for several reasons. The inmate, like Boy and Leopold, would be treated to a laudatory profile and would reap glory and other advantages including a possible parole, so doctors cited the names of prisoners whom they thought worthy of such advantages, and whose freedom they could anticipate with comfort, essentially prisoners with whom they could most easily identify. Mainstream journalists, too, were nearly universally white until the late 1960s, and they also identified with Leopold's articulateness, intellectual attainments, and socioeconomic level, in a manner they could never have identified with Jesse Williams. White volunteers were also more likely, like Leopold, to have obtained good educations, and thus were more likely to find an audience for their memoirs, which, not surprisingly, cast them in the most sympathetic light. Among some researchers, especially in southern prisons, frank racism also precluded black medical volunteers from reaping positive publicity. Right on. And that's where we will stop. We will pick up next week uh, the subheading Volunteer Medical Slavery. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. Number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6. If you would like to participate, we have over a half hour uh, left in the program, so we should have ample time. If folks have commentary you would like to share, please get your hand up now. Do not wait until the last minute to decide that you want to participate. Uh, Everybody who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to share your thoughts. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. I think the thing, I'm, I don't know. Um, I, I guess the first thing that I should say is that, you know, they really, really, really have put black people through a lot in America, white folks. I mean, it's just incredible how much black people in America have been through, not discounting what black people in other countries have been through. However, 
black people here, we have been through a tremendous amount. Um, I, I mean, it's just hard to even talk about this stuff and listen to this stuff. Um, one of the things that I really identified with was um, they talked about the cream retin-A. And I remember um, in my youth, I suffered from really bad acne. And that was one of the things that um, was highly coded as a cure to acne. So I was pretty flabbergasted, actually, to hear that this product was developed, um, was tested and pretty much developed in prisons because not only was it supposed to be a cure for acne, but they eventually started using it to help um, women with to remove wrinkles. Then they had kind of like an offshoot of it which was something that was a little less abrasive, but they really, I can imagine, I can't even imagine how much money um, this Dr. Kligman had made off of this particular product because this was being pushed by a lot of dermatologists for various reasons. Um, I also found it fascinating that a lot of the chemical warfare drugs for the FBI and the CIA were developed and researched in prisons. So it's really interesting. It kind of um, makes sense when you hear about all these different, um, what they would call conspiracy theories about um, chemical warfare, about the chemtrails and um, the different, at one point in time they were talking about some type of homosexual bomb or agent that they were using in war. So it's it all kind of comes full circle. It kind of makes sense when you start to hear these things um, that they were developing this stuff in prison. So it might even explain, too, um, the different things that take place in the prisons and the prison culture as a whole when you start to, um, when you find out things like this. Um, and I thought that this was very interesting. Um, you can see white people's mastery of the English. And Dr. Kligman, when he came out and he said, um, no harm was done to anyone who volunteered for the research. But he left out the involuntary involvement I found that to be interesting. Um, so I guess the people that volunteered, quote unquote, they weren't harmed, but it was never discussed for the people who had actually had no choice, maybe didn't give any consent. And so what I'd like to know what harm was done to the involuntary involved, um, involved subjects, test subjects. That would be interesting to hear what happened to them. Thank you for listening to my comments. I'll mute. For sure. Uh, people we have not heard from, a uh, person from a block number and uh, the caller 9516, you two should both be with us as well if you had commentary. Uh, yes, can we heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember um, seeing on, on medicine packets um, not tested on animals. Because uh, I used to hear about medicines that were tested on 
lab rats and all that, and um, uh, be, being a person that I, I mean, I do like some animals. I like cats and stuff, and so I just, I just was, you know, glad that they were having medicines that were not tested on animals. Uh, being being very naive, not realizing that that they were testing them on on my people, you know, and I I had no idea. Um, uh, and I, I talking to my my sister who lives in the inner city, she was saying that most most of the doctors that they have there are usually doctors from India or uh, Pakistan or places like that. And it's just like those um, those little quick shops and whatever that they set up in the black communities, those that that have the, the Asians and, and Arabic type people uh, running them. They don't like the black people. They you know they they hate that they have to deal with black people. And um, my, my sister was telling me that one of her doctors, uh, lots of times he, he appears inebriated. When uh, she t- comes to him and and they and they don't really answer questions, they don't really care. And um, I remember reading on Facebook uh, last year that some doctors were uh, telling patients that they had cancer when they didn't, just so they could get the extra money and run tests and all and and inject them with all kind of uh, chemicals and stuff. And I know, uh, and the, and it was one of the the doctors that got in trouble. His name was uh, Farid something. I can't remember what his last name, but but it was an Arabic name, and he's supposed to be going to to jail for that because I guess a number of the of the black patients he um, told them they had cancer, they got chemo, and they end up dying from the chemotherapy. And um, and I, I've 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 told I've told my family members that that even though on my mother's side of the family a lot of the, a lot of my relatives have died of cancer, probably a lot of it was environmental and stress and other things. Um I, I, I told them I said if I ever had cancer I wouldn't I would not get chemotherapy. Um I would just I would just let it ride out. I wouldn't get any kind of treatments or anything like that for it. And uh my my oldest brother he was 68 last year, and he died. And he died. I think maybe he died from such a young age because he refused to go to the doctor. He never ever went to the doctor. He said he didn't trust doctors, and he just ate whatever he wanted to eat. And he just let. And, and my dad too. My dad was 50 when he died, but he refused to go to the doctors. He he never went. My mother used to all the time about that and he ended up dying from a massive heart attack and it, it's it's too bad that those things have to happen when you know to us when we're so young but we're afraid and we don't know who or what to trust you know so um that's just all, that that's all i wanted to say thank you for taking my call for sure i'll be myself for sure uh, other folks who had commentary, uh, your line should be open. Feel free. If we have, or actually, the uh, caller at 9516, did you have commentary? Yes. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, this is Akua from Milwaukee. Um, um, I, what stood out to me was I thought about 
when they were giving the prisoners the drugs and they didn't know, and the prisoners didn't know were in the drugs. I thought about Dr. Wilson and what she said about the legalized marijuana. Like, you're not going to know what's in it. And they could just, just like how they gave those drugs to the prisoners, they didn't know what was in them. And it was giving them all kinds of side effects, the legalized marijuana that could very much go the same way. And um, the prisoners being castrated, which is, man, that's just hard to hear. It um, made me think about the uh, little baby that was castrated, maybe. I don't know. That was an, I don't know. Maybe within the last year or something like that, the little baby uh, went to the hospital to get uh, circumcision and they cut off his penis. And um, what stood out to me was uh, the prisoner who said, uh, we don't trust them, how can we? And the mayor reminded me of Neely Fuller, and he says, follow the logic. And that's very logical for, um, you know, him to think that they uh, treat, was giving them that stuff and making them sick and then turn around and say, oh, we're going to treat you. <laughs> so, you know, I, I understand why. He said that we don't trust them. How can we? And that's all I had. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Uh, other folks who have uh, dialed in, I think we got all the people that we have not heard from, I think. Anybody else that uh, uh, would like to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, I wanted to start with a quote on page on page 237, it says, uh, <laughs> excuse me, the AEC also sponsored 15 other radiation studies on 300 black patients at New Orleans Community Hospital. The studies were conducted by Tulane University physicians. The most toxic of these experiments involved dispensing mercury and yet another study of different racial reactions to radiation. You're a little muffled? You're a little muffled? Oh, oh I am? Do I sound better now? Much better, much better, much better. Okay, great. Should I start over or no? Yes, sir. Start. Over. Let's, let's start over. Okay, no problem. Um, this is from page 237. It says the AEC also sponsored 15 other radiation studies on 300 black patients at New Orleans Charity Hospital. The studies were conducted by Tulane University physicians. The most toxic of these experiments involved dispensing mercury and yet another study of disparate racial reactions to radiation. 22 black patients were made to swallow radioactive mercury in order to calibrate its symptoms and the length of time the body took to excrete the toxic metal. In another Tulane experiment, doctors surreptitiously placed radioactive mercury into the open sores that remained just after they removed blisters from a dozen colored and three white patients in order to judge the metal's effects on healing times. They amassed no clinically meaningful data. That reminds me of the brilliance of Neely Fuller Jr. White people study everything down to a grain of sand. And I mean, like, they'll just, they'll just waste away life like it's nothing in order to find out absolutely nothing. Um, and the inability of or our our inability to to trust white people should skyrocket um, just off the reading of this book alone because this this is just uh, this really insane and uh, kind of nauseating some of the stuff. 
Um, I want to touch on something on page 250. It says, FDA documents also condemned Klingman's practice of routinely enrolling inmates in multiple studies simultaneously, which multiplied their health risks and clouded the, the source of any adverse effects. What's more, Klingman's record-keeping discrepancies were rife. He, like many other prison investigators, destroyed or, in quotes, lost medical files. This allowed them to claim later, among other things, that African Americans were not disproportionately, excuse me, represented in abusive procedures. Only, I'm assuming, on July 9th, the FDA removed Clinton from the list of approved researchers and notified sponsors that he was no longer eligible to perform drug testing. But just a month later, the FDA restored his privileges. And you've said it all the time, um, like when we talk about uh, these terroristic police and just white people in general, they don't get fired, they get transferred, or they do this kind of nonsense temporarily, um, suspend them, and then give them back their privileges to continue to practice racism, white supremacy on black people. And so I'm just, just sick. Um, the following paragraph, it says, the FDA's concern that Klingman was venturing too far afield of dermatology, his area of expertise was certainly warranted. He began performing chemical warfare tests for the Army and the CIA using psychotropic agents. Perhaps the most harrowing experimental accounts are those of the CIA mind control experiments in which psychoactive substances, including Schedule II drugs, those with high abuse, abuse risk, were administered to inmates as part of the MK Ultra program, a CIA research program conducted from 1953 through the 1970s to produce the perfect truth drug for interrogating Soviet intelligence operatives. According to Clinton's own statements, he was operating essentially unregulated with, and with inmates who participated because they had been told neither the nature of the test nor the risk they were taking. In 1972, he enthused, it was years before the authorities knew that I was conducting various studies on prison, prisoner volunteers. Things were simple then. Informed consent was unheard of. No one asked me what I was doing. It was a wonderful time. Wow. This just speaks to... Um, in fact, the white people do whatever they want and they get away with it. Um, they are willing to dodge authority to do whatever they want. Um, this also reminds me of Operation Paperclip. I did some research on that, and they stated that um, I think Karma talked about uh, the German the German soldiers that were relocated to the United States and given asylum here um, that they resided in Texas. I remember reading um, in my research they had over 500 uh, Nazi that they basically unleashed on the American public, and they claimed that the president of the United States was not aware of it either, that the uh, the people who were facilitating this whole process were doing it unbeknownst to the president, and essentially he did not want it done, but they did it anyway is what they state. So again, um, you know, they're bucking authority to do whatever they want to do, and as long as it's about killing and terrorizing black people, white people will do whatever it takes to continue to practice racism, white supremacy. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Holmesburg. Oh, this is a section on page 252. It says, Holmesburg was no anomaly. In 1952, Chester M. Southern of Sloan Kettering Institute injected at least 396 inmates at Ohio State Prison, more, of 100, more than 180 of them black, with live human cancer cells. Southern said he wished to study the process by which healthy bodies neutralized and killed off cancer cells. One of the sponsors for Southern's research was the National Institute of Health, which also sponsored the PHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. Southern assured inmates that the experiments were perfectly safe because, quote, 
any cancer that took would spread slowly and could be removed surgically, unquote. Wow. Never, ever, ever trust white people is what this says to me. Um, also, the fact that they would actually take live cancer cells and inject them into human beings, uh, literally, I mean, there's just no way that we should ever believe anything they say. This really makes me think of my own life because I was vaccinated as a child. Like, what were they injecting me with? I have no idea what it is. And it also reminds me of, um, uh, there was a, uh, on Tando, they talked about at one point that they were actually spraying chemicals in train stations in New York City. I travel to New York City for work every day, unbeknownst to the public. Um, and they were testing certain aspects of how these chemicals they were spraying would affect people, the, the public. Um, so I'm just very wary about all of these things. And I don't even use the term conspiracy theory because there's no such thing as a conspiracy theory. I go along with Dave from Tando. It's a conspiracy agenda. If we study the stuff that we've been studying throughout the course of the cows and specifically in this book, there is no paranoia as far as our, our um our distrust of white people, iatrophobia, whatever you want to label it, we should go to the extreme as far as our distrust and our weariness of white people. I uh, thank you for taking my call, Gus, and I'll meet my line there. For sure. Uh, the caller at five nine nine two five nine nine two. Did you have commentary? Yes, hello everyone. Um, yeah, I want to make a comment from page uh, two fifty four on engineered uh, invisibility, where they talked about how um, African-Americans were usually excluded from earlier prison studies uh, and until the civil rights movement succeeded in equalizing social opportunities for African-Americans, including research opportunities. And I have been thinking about that, too, and my guess is that uh, under the guise of the so-called pseudo-formal racial equality established by uh, civil rights and voting rights laws, affirmative action, that these uh, shields the madness of white people. <laughs> I mean, they just give a cover, not just these policies, but also words like benevolent or Hippocratic oath, do no harm, and they wear white, they're supposed to uh, you know, symbolize uh, pure and, and things of this nature. Um, in terms of, you know, again, people not recognizing what exactly is going on. And, and it's, it's just very unfortunate that we pay into these concepts and not seeing what's, what's really going on with these mad people. And another thing on page um, 257, where they're talking about this guy, Leopold, who um, supposedly committed the crime of the century. And once he was in jail, he was, um, he started playing a role recruiting other inmates to join the malaria experiments. I have no doubt in my mind, no doubt at all, that the psychopathic white doctors probably either paid him or granted him parole if he did this task for them. So I have no doubt in my mind that somewhere, you know, all of this was, um, all of this was planned, knowing this guy was already a sociopath like them. Uh, they went on and recruited him to do, um, to do their dirty work. That's pretty much all I want to say. Thank you. For sure. Uh, folks that we have not heard from uh, after the conclusion of the second audio clip, people that we haven't heard from yet. Yes. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. 
Yes, uh, those were interesting comments there. I, I like that. that. That was very important. I had highlighted those two things also, but uh, I wanted to just get to the nitty-gritty of some of these uh, experiments in prison, uh, the fingernails being removed and that punch biopsy, you know, it's kind of like a little uh, drill that they punch into your finger. It actually takes the nail, part of the nail and uh, the skin too. You know, it had to be uh, terribly painful and then using those forceps to take the whole fingernail, force it off of, you know, the hand of the subject. And <clears throat> we had already talked about those patches. You know, in uh, sinister uh, science, you know, the guy said he'd take those patches off his back or wherever they were, you know, and put them on the wall until the next day, you know, and put them back on. But even with that, you know, the damage that it did to them, you know, uh, using those little tricks to try to survive a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, and it was interesting, uh, uh, the last caller was saying that, <clears throat> you know, in the 1960s, you know, before that they were using whites, and then the uh, civil rights afforded black people to become subjects, you know, but it's funny that uh, some of the other rights, like the right to vote, you had to, you know, uh, you know, go through all of what you had to go through, but as soon as uh, they looked at the fact of using black subjects, you know, as prisoners, you know, that we can do that right away. Let's just hurry up and do that. So, uh, uh, yeah, and whites being used in experiments that were less risky, like the one having a white guy put his arm into some detergent, you know, for an hour. <laughs> as opposed to giving herpes to the black guy, some incurable, uh, painful, you know, uh, experiment. So it's just double indictment. And then you throw in mainstream journals, you know, that were universally white, you know, until the late uh, 1960s. They identified with Leopold's articulousness and his intelligence obtained. You know, all that is ridiculous, but that's what we have when we living in uh, a system of white supremacy, racism, white supremacy. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call, guys. For sure, for sure. Uh, anybody else that we have not heard from uh, after? The conclusion of the second audio. Anybody we haven't heard from? We got everybody? Grand. We will uh, get to it. Again, do not wait till the, we're almost at the end, so you shouldn't have waited this long if you uh, had things you wanted to share. Uh, some of the things uh, that stood out. Uh, again, and I think this has been another massive theme throughout the book as well, where white people come in and they butcher these black people and make millions, and the black people get nothing. In fact, we heard that uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, Rebecca Skloot's book 
from uh, way back. I think we did that at the end of uh, 2014, but we have heard this repeatedly uh, throughout this book and throughout the history of looking at how black people have been exploited uh, in the medical field uh, where white people make all this money or they come up with new treatments uh, that help to solve uh, a disease or to make you a bit more comfortable and get you in less pain. But black people are not the beneficiaries of that. Black people are the ones who suffer uh, to bring about these advancements. If you want to go all the way back to Dr. Uh, J. Marion Sims, uh, the racist from the 19th century. Uh, and this has been another major pattern throughout the book where she says uh, Kligman's record-keeping discrepancies were rife. He, like many other prison investigators, destroyed or lost medical files. This allowed them to claim later, among other things, that African Americans were not disproportionately represented in abusive procedures. I love that she put lost in quotation marks to suggest that maybe this was not a accidental loss, that maybe this was a deliberate uh, burning trashing uh, of records so that they could not be indicted as racist and that seems to be another pattern. I think we heard some of that with the uh, Tuskegee experiment where they went around and interviewed people and did a tape recording of uh, Nurse Eunice Rivers and then trashed that. Uh, we don't want this stuff uh, to come out so we can you know, be further indicted. This just seems to be standard operating procedure. Even with some of what we heard uh, in the last chapter chapter 9 when they had the first black uh, president or chairman of the, the DOE and she released all these records I am sure uh, that some some white person went through uh, to sanitize some of that information before it came out I am absolutely positive that they did not just do a, a total uh, unredacted dump of records about how black people have been mauled with radiation studies uh, moving forward um, yeah, just totally unre uh, unregulated. Who cares about black people? It even reminded me there's a, a white author. She was on the program some years back where she did a book. It's called Invisible Men, where she, ta she taught that that was the exact thesis of the book, that once you are a black person and you are in greater confinement, who cares what happens to you? I mean, really. I, I mean, even with what has come out this week where you've had, not just this week, but all of these black people that are in greater confinement where, oh, darn, Darren Wilson planted something on this person or, oh, darn, we just made up some evidence uh, and said that this, you know, DNA evidence was there and it matched up to them. And that wasn't the case. So we had this hair and it matched up to this person. Oh, and it actually wasn't this person. Oh, we got DNA evidence and you've been exonerated and all these false and wrongfully convicted black people. You add the double way. I mean, and that's. <laughs> euphemistically pitiful but I mean you add the double whammy of you end up being there for something that you didn't do and then you get experimented on and all this stuff on top of it oh my uh, I mean just the horrors uh, just they are unbounded uh, in the system of white supremacy um, let's see where she says it was a wonderful time. Yeah, Roz got that. That was a great one. Uh, we actually heard from Edward Anthony. Uh, he was the guest that Alan Hornblum uh, brought with him back in 2014 when we discussed Sentenced to Science, where he talked about some of these tests that he went through and having the skin patches on his back and everything. One of the things that she left out from this book that is extremely important that gets uh, discussed in Acres of Skin, uh, and we had Edward Anthony, he was on the program, he talked about this in detail, even though uh, Alan Hornblum said that this wasn't something that he was in, as knowledgeable about, which I just don't believe because I'm ignorant Gus and I know this and I know their scholarship uh, on this where white people even investigated this specifically. Those experiments, uh, and I'm talking about what was happening in uh, Hornbloom Prison specifically in Pennsylvania, those experiments 
were driving a lot of the sexual deviance and homosexual behavior. Uh, And they talked about this in detail because what was happening was that uh, Holmesburg, sorry, it's Holmesburg prison, you were having inmates, some of these studies, you could get, you know, a couple hundred dollars, you know, which is not tons of money, but within that environment, within the context of prison, that is a lot of money. And so you were ending up with people who had enough money that they could bribe guards, they could bribe other inmates. Hey, I like that convict over there. I want to rape that person. And you could just bribe the guard, or you could bribe the inmate, and boom, you could make it happen. That they were This was ended up being like a whole little prostitution gang because you were having inmates who were doing these studies and piling up a lot of, relatively speaking, uh, a lot of cash that they were able to sexually exploit other inmates. That was an important part of why they said these studies need to stop because there's nothing uh, constructive about this, and this is just rampant exploitation all the way around and destructive behaviors. That was a crucial part of it. And again, Edward Anthony, he talked about that explicitly, that there was so much uh, of this sexual abuse and sexual deviance going on and that it was being allowed that they, the, the guards were, no, again, there was no ignorance that they were allowing this to happen. This was a part of the environment that they wanted for this predominant black prison population. Moving forward. Um, and again, you can just go back to the archives and hear him break all that down. We spent a good chunk of time talking about that summer of 2014, August 2014. Um, same thing. I think we brought this up uh, after the first audio segment about when it's when black people find out years later, generally, that, you know, these things have been happening and they try to make a lawsuit and get some sort of uh, settlement, some sort of compensation for what they have gone through. And. Uh, whites fight them tooth and nail, and it's not even like they don't have the money. Uh, they could easily, you know, write them a check for whatever to cover their expenses and take care of them. I mean, it would be nothing, and they don't even want to do that. <laughs> We're not even going to give you, you know, a few nickels for which we have put you through. And I mean, Mr. Anthony talked about how he continues to suffer, uh, how he will have. Uh, just uh, his skin will flare up and his nails and all this other stuff where it's difficult and just the pain of going out because it's on his skin and what have you. So people can see it. People can see it on his hands and what have you and having to deal with that. People looking at you all crazy and not wanting to touch you and being ostracized in that matter. And, and just the scars, both spiritually, emotionally, physically that they have to deal with. It is it is mind boggling. Um, moving forward. I think you already touched on where some of these folks lost their license or they lost FDA approval and then they got it back after, you know, five minutes. Um, the portion where she says in high doses, uh, bulbocapnine, I think that's how you say it, produces uh, catatonia and stupor, a statue-like state which Heath and his associates, Harry Bailey, M.D., thought would be useful for controlling violent prisoners. According to the memo, the CIA, CIA thought information as sought information as to whether it, the drug could cause loss of speech, loss of sensitivity to pain, loss of memory, loss of willpower, loss of memory, loss of uh, an increase, uh, an increase in toxicity in a person with a weak type of central nervous system. They tested the drug exclusively. I'll say that. <laughs> they tested the drug exclusively. They tested the drug exclusively on African-American prisoners whom Bailey routinely referred to as niggers at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is Angola, which we talked about before, uh, from the half has never been told, and uh, the American Slave Coast uh, and other uh, books and, and what have you, uh, infamous uh, in the state of uh, Louisiana. I thought that was so important. I think the caller that mentioned 
uh, what could be in the cannabis, in my opinion, to have the CIA doing this and exclusively doing this on niggers. They are always looking for weapons, a means to further control and tighten their domination on niggers. I am certain that they probably concocted some sort uh, of chemicals, some sort of toxin, who knows what's in the water in Flint, uh, to do this exactly. And loss of willpower just extraordinary this is when dr cambon when he says we're not talking about people that are crazy dr welsing said that as well we should not be calling whites crazy to do this yes it is inhumane yes this is pathology of i mean the highest levels but i mean this is scientific terrorism this is someone the lab coat going in and i'm not just some uncouth uneducated toothless moron uh, talking about Negras. No, 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 no. I'm going in the lab and thinking, how are we going to maintain domination over these dark people for the next five million years? That's the way that we should be thinking about what we need to do to solve this problem and how serious this is. That pa- I thought that was one of the most important paragraphs in the book, just the implications of what was said. Um, yeah, I thought that was true. The most risky and painful. I'd have to go back and even listen to the interview with Mr. Hornblum to make sure that he emphasized that the most painful, the most risky experiments were reserved for black people. Because that's something that's been my experience that white people try and cut corners and act like, oh, that's not so. And white people had to go through some of this, too. And she just makes it plain, make it simple, make it explicit what this is about terrorizing black people. Um I did think that there was a little bit of uh, cutting white people, a little bit of slack in terms of this being about uh, racism, uh, where she was talking about some of the experiment, uh, experimentation, particularly with prisoners. Uh, and why would we do this with prisoners? Uh, because they're confined. They can't go anywhere uh, and that sort of thing. And, and not just, I mean, make it plain. The prison population in this area of the world is deliberately dark. And it's been that way for a long time, as Karma said, since the end of formal slavery. Slavery by another name. We had Douglas Blackman on the program. It's been deliberately like this for a long time. And whites have been deliberately exploiting black inmates for a long time. We also had the book Texas Tough, where they talked about the same thing, exploiting black inmates, whether it's experimenting on them, whether it's using their labor, whatever it happens to be, Uh, even just them being there. And so we're going to invest in this and make money off of private prisons, whatever. We have a limitless number of ways that we're going to exploit and make a lot of money off of these niggers behind bars and plan to do so for a long time. Forward thinking about this from before the time that they were born that we were going to have them locked up and what we're going to be doing to them. I just, I did think, I did sense that there was a little bit of uh, cutting corners about that in terms of just make it plain uh, what they're doing. Uh, It might have been the editor, it might have been that she felt like she didn't have, you know, solid, explicit enough evidence to state it that bluntly, but in my opinion, I mean, it's there. It's, it's, it's just, it's obvious uh, in my view. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, We had any time, maybe one more comment if somebody had something concise they wanted to get in before we conclude. Everybody satisfied? I'll assume everyone is satisfied. Grin. Uh, we will pick up there next Friday. Uh, we are still in Chapter 10, Experimentation uh, on Prisoners. Uh, and again, all of this is ongoing. I don't think it would take very much 
looking to see some of this stuff popping up uh, again more currently uh, in the last 25 years or so. Uh, just that many of the audio clips that I have played have been things that are current, like current within the last year, uh, this year even, uh, as we have been progressing uh, through the book. But I don't think it would take a whole lot of uh, looking. And I would, again, encourage if you have the book or if you just go to the library, I think this book is not very difficult to find. It sold a lot of copies, won a lot of awards, got a lot of acclaim. Uh, you probably will be able to get this at your local uh, library. Uh, if you get the book, uh, take some time to look through the reference section to see some of the books that she uh, cites. I would certainly encourage uh, folks reading Acres of Skin by Alan Hornblum, uh, Sentence to Science, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, the Plutonium Files, which gives more information about the radiation experiments uh, done on black people. Uh, Undue Risk by Jonathan Moreno. She cited that in this book as well, talking about the change uh, in these experiments when they began to include uh, black people. Just a lot of wealth uh, of, of great resources uh, and information. I would encourage folks uh, to check out if you get the book. Just kind of make a cash. You can just look at the bibliography section. You don't even have to look at every uh, footnote. Just kind of take a few moments, a minute or two, uh, and flip through the bibliography section. And you'll see some of the different books that she references to compile all of this uh, fantastic documentation. Uh, with that, we will wrap. Uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow evening. Compensatory call in, 9 Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, looking forward to hearing folks uh, converse what's gone down the last seven days. Uh, we'll be here also on Monday. We will not be at the normal program time because our guest is a white person in South Africa, so it's a nine-hour time difference. So we'll be on at, I believe it's 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, uh, which is considerably no uh, earlier than we typically would be on. Uh, but that's because of the time difference. If you're able to tune in live, grand. Always good to talk to white folks, and particularly folks in different parts of the world. Uh, we'll be here on Tuesday as well. Kathy Dang uh, will t uh, be talking about the case with uh, Peter Liang, the uh, Chinese-American officer uh, who shot and killed uh, Akai Gurley in 2014. Uh, he was convicted uh, and then sentenced to no jail time. Uh, she's been talking about this case uh, and talking from the perspective uh, that this is white supremacy in operation uh, and how anti-blackness functions and even getting non-white, non-black people to support the system in terrorizing, abusing black people. But she should be here on Tuesday back to our normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you have commentary, gripes, guest suggestions, questions, you can't find something in the archives, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com thoroughly enjoying the book and uh, again just very glad uh, to have the opportunity to uh, read with listeners has been a great experience and uh, we are slowly encroaching upon the finish line I think we probably will have four I think max five of these left uh, before we get to the wrap of the book uh, that said uh, I will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism this is a great book to emphasize the importance of sobriety Lord knows what they have put in any of these uh, concoctions alcohol any other drugs that they come out with mollies the weed who knows the heroin who knows what's in it uh, you have scientists who are sitting around looking for ways of breaking the willpower of black people we need our brain computers operating at optimal levels to figure out how best to solve this problem to neutralize racist man racist woman racist child certainly if you're going to be in a vehicle uh, staying out of greater confinement man 
Let's not be under the influence. We do not want to make Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson's job, any easier than it already is. Uh, buckle up. Let's minimize contact with enforcement officers uh, and just make sure we make the best possible decisions uh, should you be stopped by any enforcement official. And I will definitely say now that it's summertime and warm and people are going and hanging out and all that, you do not want to be around whites who are intoxicated. That is a bad combination anytime, anywhere, worldwide under the system of white supremacy. Check the uh, wish list, Amazon.com. Thanks to all the folks who have supported. Love the books. Uh, I think the top two books on there uh, pertaining to racism, white supremacy, and Canada. Looking forward. We're having those guests come on later this month. Uh, Very much looking to nabbing uh, some of the top books from the wish list. Gus T. Renegade is where it's listed at. And again, thanks to all the folks who have contributed, invested, supported down through the years. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.